Good morning. It's June 8th, 2023, and a smoky day in Wheaton. Um, I'm sure the sun is somewhere above the smoke, but we'll wait for it to get out here. Uh, I have a note uh, in history. On uh, June 8th, 1966, fair housing activists with ACCESS, the Action Coordinating Committee to End Segregation in the Suburbs, began a 66-mile march around the Capitol Beltway. The demonstrators, led by J. Uh, Charles Jones, began the four-day march at, at Georgia Avenue and Forest Glen. The protest drew attention to the pervasive housing discrimination that existed in the D.C. suburbs be before local and national fair housing laws. The, this history is the subject of a soon-to-be-installed uh, untold story uh, for a historic marker there. Um, we're glad the march didn't start today because of the smoke. It would have been unhealthy, uh, let alone the fact that they were doing something that uh, needed correcting. Um, but in anyhow, uh, this is another historic day f for us here in the sense that uh, uh, Pen Commissioner Panera and myself, uh, this will be our last board meeting. Uh, wow. Well, now that, it, is that profound or what? The gods are, are sad. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm sure it's just for uh, uh, Commissioner Panera leaving. He, uh, uh, he's had a, a long career and uh, and uh, been members of uh, many boards. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, his history, it's a it's a alphabet soup, as is most of uh, uh, those of us who work in government. So it was G O G A O for uh, yeah. for his work life. It was H O C. It was B O A, and now it's M N C P P C. Uh, so um, we thank him for his uh, all his public efforts, and uh, if you'd like to say a couple sure. of uh, remarks. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chair, for such uh, kind words. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, the time that I've been doing volunteer work on HOC on, uh, and also being on the Board of Appeals. And particularly this, this time that I've been on the acting board. Um, you know, coming to this board, I didn't know what to expect because of all the situation that was going on. We were kind of wondering, you know, we, we um, and, and I think definitely thanks to the chair, to um, Jeff, that uh, he's so knowledgeable about all the planning and the park issues. We've I've, you know, we've all contributed to providing stability to the agency, and and uh, one of the things that has impressed me the most is the the quality and the professional professionalism of the staff uh, here in in the both the park and the planning staff. So I've I've told everyone here, um, you know, we come here as a really as a part-time board member. We ask questions. We read the material, but uh, we rely on really the, 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 the amazing job that both the acting executive director and all the staff that comes here and uh, gives us the information that we need. 
and the value that we add is we add some value but we you know i was impressed by everyone here um and uh, i just want to say that you know i've i've um, this has been a great experience for me and um good luck to everyone here and good luck to the new staff james <laughs> mitra sean uh, and the new two board members that are coming this is it's a wonderful experience uh, to learn about um, the work that um, that, the, that the staff here does, and and I want to thank the chair, of course, uh, again that he's been an amazing. I mean, he knows the issues in and out, and uh, for me as a part-time board member, it's been fantastic to be able to uh, support him all along. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you for your career of service. All right, we have preliminary matters. We have uh, three resolutions, uh, Evolution Labs Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-2015-001B, Evolution Labs Site Plan Amendment B, uh, I'm sorry, 8-2015-001B, uh, Evolution Labs North Bethesda Sketch Plan Amendment uh, number 3 uh, 2013-001A. Uh, uh, we're all eligible to vote on this. Can I hear a motion, please? Move that we approve the three Evolution Labs amendments. Can we do them all as one? Yes. Okay. Move that we approve all three Evolution Labs amendments, the preliminary, the site plan, and the schedule plan. Do I hear a second? Second. Okay. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. So that's 400. Uh, 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 Commissioner Barkley will not be joining us today, and we wish him well. Um, we have three uh, other resolutions for this. Uh, uh, Commissioner Panero uh, must abstain. It's Poplar Grove Preliminary Plan Amendment 1-2019-004B, uh, Park Potomac Preliminary Plan 1-2003-029B, uh, Park Potomac Site Plan 8 2023 30 I'll entertain a motion to approve those resolutions. I'll move that we approve those three resolutions. I second that. All those in favor say aye. 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 And I will abstain. Okay. So it's uh, it's three zero one. Okay. Uh, we now have uh, one set of minutes to approve. Uh, we were oh, actually we have two sets of minutes. Which is it? Two. Two sets. Okay. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, the minutes from uh, May twenty fifth, uh, twenty twenty three, and uh, June first, twenty twenty three. I'll entertain a motion to approve the minutes. Move that we approve both sets of minutes. And before you vote on that, we just want to note that in the June 1st minutes, um, we will be um, just revising slightly to indicate that um, Vice Chair um, Pedowing uh, is the Vice Chair as of that day. So June 1st was her day. So we're just going to make that minor modification okay. to the minutes. Oh, okay. Okay. That's a good modification. Thank we you. like our Vice Chair. Thank you. <laughs> um, okay. Do I need to abstain from part of that? The minutes for June first for the. That's forum. okay. You were here for the majority of the meeting, okay. so we generally allow okay. Okay. to vote on the minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, do I did did we get a motion? I forgot. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, all those in favor say aye. Uh, I second. Oh, I second. I'm sorry. Yeah. I thought we 
right. Now we could go on. Now we can go on. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero zero. Okay. Moving. And before you go on, with regard to the minutes for today, um, because Commissioner Bartley is absent, um, and because um, Chair Zients and Commissioner um, Pinero will not be here, um, we would otherwise only have two available to vote on the minutes. So what we would like you all to approve is the um, ability for um, Commissioner Pinero and Chair Zients to vote via email. Um, on the minutes, we'll circulate those as quickly as we can and get your votes so that we will have the four from the four of you. Um, so if everyone is okay with that, um, to allow email vote on the minutes for today. That was a very good forward thinking. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> we try. We try to anticipate what we can. And, and just to be technical, you have to do that before June 15th because that's the expiration of our term. Correct. So we will try to get those minutes done um, in the next day or two um, okay. and then send them to the two of you as well um, to take a vote. So okay. if you can make a motion to allow that to happen, someone, that would be great. I make a motion to allow to approve the minutes uh, by email uh, for today. Mm -hmm. Seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right. Four zero zero. Thank you for that. That will save the next board some headaches <laughs> or at least legal some headaches <laughs> mm -hmm. all right we have no record plots today um we have one extension uh federal plaza west uh it's a regulatory request number five uh it's for site plan three twenty twenty two zero one zero zero preliminary plan one twenty twenty two zero one four zero do I hear a motion to approve the extension? It's a very short extension. Yes, one so. week. One week. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> extension, yeah. yeah, I make a motion to approve the extension request. Seconded. Okay, all those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero zero. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, we're now on uh, item four, roundtable discussion. I'll turn it over to uh, Director uh, Mike. <laughs> Good, uh, good morning, Planning Board. Mike Riley, Parks Director. I have a uh, singular theme to my Park Director's Report today, which is a huge thank you uh, to Chair Zients and Commissioner Pinheiro. Um, I want to thank you and everyone who served on the Interim Planning Board during a challenging uh, transition, and, and Commissioners Presley, Hill, and Branson as well. Um, for what it's worth, I would give the performance of the interim board an A+. You came in and you were uh, supportive of the staff, you were deliberative, you asked us great questions, you challenged us when we needed to be challenged, and I think you all made excellent decisions uh, and kept the work of both the planning department and the parks department moving forward. That really is the biggest indicator of how well the interim board did is the work was never interrupted there was not a hiccup we just kept everything that was important to the customers and constituents we serve moving moving forward so I just want to say a huge thank you on behalf of all members uh, 607 uh, about 700 plus or minus on any given day um, employees of the Parks Department I just have a few slides that cover the uh, term of the interim board as uh, as chair Zients 
was chair, so if you'll indulge me, this is my 13th park director's report since Chair Zients and Commissioner Pinheiro came on board. Uh, I hope I've kept you informed and somewhat entertained about all the different multifaceted uh, issues the Parks Department is in the middle of. I, I really appreciated the feedback uh, uh, that, you know, the Parks Department is doing good things for the community and seems to be going in the right direction. Uh, just some of the things that happened. Uh, you approved the FY24 operating budget uh, and the outcome of that on the park side was just determined uh, a week or so ago with the reconciliation and as usual, the county council came through in the end with the money we need to support the park system. So I attribute a lot of that to the high quality of the budget that was submitted and the justifications behind what we asked for. And I thank the board for approving the request. Uh, you approved several property acquisitions, including one key to our big uh, initiative that we call the uh, uh, Long Branch uh, Initiative, where we're trying to improve a series of eight parks in that community over a relatively short period of time. Uh, you also endorsed the spring semi-annual for the agency, which was well received by the county council uh, in April. Uh, you had to deal with uh, the uh, somewhat controversial project of Little Falls Parkway, which is still an evolving story, but I do want to thank you for um, really respecting the data-driven approach that the Parks Department took in reaching um, conclusions on what the best path forward was that. Approved a master plan for one of our largest regional parks in Wheaton Regional Park, 400 acres in the middle of Montgomery County to set that park in motion for the future for the next generation. And then another one that you most recently uh, dealt with, of course, that had a little bit of uh, controversy behind it was the, uh, our efforts to form the uh, Veterans Park in Bethesda, which we, uh, step one didn't go so well, but step two we planned to go very well and ultimately realize the vision of that master plan down there. So that's a pretty good list. It's certainly not a comprehensive list, but in a relatively short period of time of some things that came up. Uh, Chair Zients attended a few ribbon cuttings right off the bat. This was a great park in Fairland called The Pit. It's a bike skills park that's a relatively new and exciting uh, park for us that bikers of all skill levels and ages can uh, ride the trail network there, including some features for very advanced uh, riders. Uh, and this was uh, this was right off the beginning here, I think, that uh, the, the honorary riding of the, the best float in the Silver Spring Thanksgiving Day Parade um, uh, with me on, uh, on Thanksgiving, which was a, a, a two-hour ride. And it was a funny story. After the parade was over, the driver had to get the float back to a certain area after it was over, so he drove us through the streets of Silver Spring, and Jeff and I just continued doing the parade wave <laughs> to everybody who was astonished to see this big float coming down the residential streets. Um, another ribbon cutting of a nice project down in Tacoma Park where we renovated a playground and improved a, a community park in Silver Spring, and the residents and elected officials of Tacoma Park were very grateful and it was very well received. Uh, uh, also, recognizing our employees, uh, you will remember the Tom Baker on the upper, uh, upper left that you recognized for um, serving in the emergency where the plane got stuck up in the 
uh, power lines, and then some of on the right, some of our community uh, outreach and public relations staff receiving awards for, for their work. So it really is important to the staff when the board, uh, as you just did, Commissioner Pinheiro, in your, in your remarks, uh, hear uh, the praise for the good work of the staff. It really does uh, matter. And then this we just did a little bit. You know, Jeff, this is not the first time Jeff's been with the commission. So we hope we got this right, that you started in September 1973 as an intern. We do need you to fill in the blank of when you became uh, division chief of countywide planning. We couldn't, in our research, figure that out. But uh, we, we, I, did, I was searching around the planning department's website. And if you search Jeff Science uh, chief countywide planning, you will find memos that he penned in that position in that era, some very interesting ones. I found one in 2002 where uh, Jeff was introducing the then uh, head of the Purple Line project for a briefing. And I want to go back and watch that because I bet he said the Purple Line would be done in 2010 uh, <laughs> back then. Uh, it was off by a decade or two. But uh, um, I worked closely with Jeff. When, when Jeff was a chief of countywide planning, it was for a period, it was a very strange period where the Parks Department and Planning Department were under one director. We were actually called the Department of Park and Planning for a while, <coughs> a little history. It didn't work out so well and it changed back. But Jeff oversaw uh, projects like the Countywide Park Trails Plan and, and several others that dealt with parks. Uh, I won't go through uh, all these other dates, Jeff. I hope we got them right, but I'll just go to the finish here and say, you know, because the chair is limited to two terms, the chair of the planning board will open up again in 2031. <laughs> so I'd just like you to put that on your Rolodex just in case, you know, the golf isn't going so well and you're looking for a, something interesting to do, you can, you can take a look back in 2031. But I'll, I'll just wrap up uh, saying thank you and uh, it, it really, uh, has been a pleasure having you back here as chair, and I know we will stay in touch going into the future and wish you bo both you and Commissioner Pinheiro the best in your, uh, your, your, your non-work lives going forward. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to work with you and, and your staff. Uh, just, just terrific. And, and uh, most of all, I, I appreciate the fact that I was allowed to try to copy your hairstyle without recognition. <laughs> uh, that, that was important to me. I, I thought flattery was the, was the best uh, part of, uh... well, anyhow, I, uh, I appreciate all your work and, uh, and uh, look forward to being a retiree and uh, using the park system more. But thank you for that. Any, no, I thank echo you. the words of the chair. I mean, it's it's been amazing. Uh, you guys are uh, very good staff, and and of course, uh, Director Riley has always provided us with very good information with his um, uh, updates uh, every other every, every other week, just like uh, uh, Acting Director Stern. So thank you very much. And we're looking forward to that sixth gold medal? Yes. Seventh. Seventh, thank you. Seventh. Well, I looked at the last one, so it's six. <laughs> my, my flight is booked for Dallas in October, and I hope to be coming home with number seven. 
All right, well, I look forward to the invitation to come back for that presentation. Thank you very much. Do we have to wait? Yes. But I do like the hairstyle. Good morning. It's still June 8th in the smoke of Wheaton. Um, we are on item 6, uh, Bethesda Downtown Sector Plan Park Impact Payment Adjustment. With that, I'll turn it over to staff. Good morning, uh, Chair and Commissioners. Elza Heisler-McCoy, Chief of Down County Planning for the Record, uh, here today to talk about the Park Impact Payment Rate Adjustment for the Bethesda Downtown Plan. Uh, the Park Payment, uh, the park impact payment uh, is used by uh, the parks department to fund uh, the acquisition and development of public open space um, in the Bethesda overlay zone per the plan. Uh, the overlay zone uh, set the rate for the park impact payment for $10 per square foot of Bethesda overlay zone density that a project um, uh, uh, got approval for. Um, and the code requires that the planning board adjust uh, the payment rate by July 1st of each odd-numbered year by the annual average increase or decrease in a published construction cost index for the two most recent calendar years. So the methodology that we have been using um, is the, has been this, the method that the county director of finance uses to adjust development impact taxes. Um, the, the rates are, are published um, in the county register on uh, 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 May 1st of this year. Um, this method averages the change in construction costs as measured by the Engineering News Records Baltimore Construction Cost Index for the two most recent calendar years. 
uh, for 21, uh, 2021 and 2022, uh, that increase is 9.4 or was 9.47%, which increases uh, the PIP rate uh, by $1.08 per square foot from $11.41 to $12.49. Uh, this is the rate that we are commending to you today. I will mention, and as I'm sure many of you are aware, that um, the methodology, the implementation of the, the methodology, I think has been called into question, and there are efforts uh, to uh, change uh, the, the laws regarding how uh, the increases are determined for the development impact taxes and associated zoning text amendments to similarly update the language for the Bethesda overlay zone and the downtown Silver Spring overlay zone, which essentially copied the language from the Bethesda overlay zone. So the next time uh, we do this um, in 2025, there, there uh, will likely be a different methodology, but since we are June 8th, we are using the previous methodology. Um, and so again, we commend to you $12.49 as the new Rate. Uh, this rate will be effective for all covered applications approved by the Planning Board after July 1st of this year. Uh, and if there's a site plan approved uh, prior to uh, July 1st of this year that is later amended, uh, they will be subject to the new rate only for the additional density they are requesting. And with that, I am open to any questions. And just to so the board knows uh, uh, the council need not approve uh, what we're doing today. This rate will apply automatically? That is correct. There will be a resolution um, available, uh, Ms. Vias, are we approving that uh, as part of this? So as part of this effort, we have a resolution for you to approve that uh, legalifies what we're talking about. Commissioner Panera. Yeah, um, I don't want to know who, why is it being called into questions or by whom, but I noticed that it's called the Baltimore. Does that include Montgomery County, Prince George County? I mean, is it, does it go beyond Baltimore? Sure. So I have with me Bilal Ali from uh, our, uh, our research team, and I will defer to him. Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, Bilal, Research Division. Um, the... I'm not actually entirely sure what their methodology is, but they look at construction costs from the state of Maryland. It's based in Baltimore. That's just who publishes it, the engineering news record. Um, but I think they look at statewide uh, construction costs and make an index out of it. Um, and it purported to be the state construction cost index. So. Right. Thank you very much. Any other com commissioner? Yeah, um, I see that there is item five that we're going to talk about revising uh, all of these impact taxes, including PIP, yeah. uh, that we're going to do that, and that would be for 2025. The question is that, you know, because they brought it up, and it was questioned that for transportation impact tax, they say we don't do averaging. It has to be cumulative. But we're just doing, uh, have we ever done this, PIP, or this is the first time that we are adjusting? Because I know that it came up while I was still at the Parks Department, so I do not know how we have been doing it before. Sure. So this is the third update. So okay. the plan was, uh, the Bethesda Downtown Sector Plan was approved in 2017. Yes. So we did okay. it in, in uh, 2019 uh, and 2021. 
So we have been doing this averaging since then, but then it would be changed based on what your proposal is. Okay, got it'll, it. It'll be changed if it's changed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's the proposal, yeah. Thank you. I just, if we made the changes that we're going to be discussing later on, do do you know off the top of your head what the difference would be between this adjustment and the other? And, and if, if we apply the new formula retroactively, I'm just curious. Yeah, so we, we looked at that, um, and had we been applying the rates cumulatively, mm -hmm. um, we would be in the neighborhood of $15. Instead of 12 and change, we'd be at 15 and change. Okay, so it would be similar. Okay. Wow. Okay, I'll entertain a motion. All right. Uh, go ahead. No, major. Please. I make a motion to approve uh, the new rate for parking pack payment uh, for, uh, is it just for Bethesda? And, yeah. It's just for Bethesda and the accompanying resolution. Okay. For, for Bethesda only, as uh, stated in this uh, item. At $12,049 per square foot. $12.49, yeah. And your, and, and your motion also includes the resolution. Okay. And including the resolution. I will second that. Not the 12,000 part. <laughs> We're not going to second that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you take it. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't get development. <laughs> there you go. 12. That's a Parthian shot. All right. All those in favor of the motion say aye. 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 All right. Four zero zero. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Good morning. It's June 8th, 2023. We're on item 7 at the Planning Board. Uh, it's AB uh, 785 Northfield Road right-of-way abandonment. Um, uh, with that, I'll turn it over to staff to present this to us. All right, good morning. Um, as you mentioned, Katie Mencarini, Down County, presenting AB 785, portions of Northfield Road, right-of-way abandonment in Bethesda. Staff is recommending approval of the right-of-way abandonment with conditions. Now, before we get into the specific case, I wanted to briefly summarize the right-of-way abandonment process as it's specified in Section 49, Article 6 of the County Code. So by way of resolution, the county council may choose to close or abandon any county right-of-way that's been in public use. So this pertains to sidewalks, bikeways, roadways, storm drains, sewers, paths, and the like. Now, any person or government agency may file an application with Montgomery County Department of Transportation with a request to close or abandon a county public right-of-way. Typically, we call that a petition. Um, before the council can act, however, the, council, the county executive or designee must hold a public hearing. And prior to that public hearing, the county executive must solicit comments from the planning board and other planning agencies, such as MCDPS, MCDOT, WSSC, the police department, et cetera. Um, and then those agencies have 60 days to reply, or the executive will presume that the agency does not oppose the proposal, which brings us here today. So let's talk about this specific case. So as I mentioned at the top, uh, staff recommends approval for the partial abandonment of Northfield Road AB 785 with conditions. Um, as I mentioned before, it's council that makes the final decision. So what we're really looking for today is permission to transmit comments and what those comments are. All right. Oh, sure.
Okay, well, if you would continue from where we left off. Sure thing. Yeah, we were just coming on to a little bit more about the site itself. Um, so Northfield Road is a residential street that runs from Huntington Parkway to the west and terminates at Greenwich ne Neighborhood Park to the east in Bethesda. The subject abandonment pertains to the northern half of the easternmost block between Moreland Lane and Greenwich Neighborhood Park. It's shown in a dashed red box right here. Um, and then what's shown below is the park access path um, in the green arrow. So the right-of-way is subject to the 1990 Bethesda Chevy Chase Master Plan, the 2018 Master Plan of Highways and Transitways, and Chapter 49 of the County Code, none of which mentions this piece of right-of-way specifically. Okay, So let's talk about it. Northfield Road was dedicated to public use when the subdivision was originally platted in the 1930s. Petitioners Bradley and Sophie Buthlick, here forth, um, going to be mentioned as the applicant, um, own the adjoining properties located at 8401 Moreland Lane, the yellow house in the foreground, and 5423 Northfield Road in the background. So those two adjoining properties. And I just want to point out here, so it's these two properties right here. And then here's what they look like from the ground. Okay. Both properties are accessed from this piece of Northfield Road. As evidence in the site photos, the Northfield Road right-of-way is comprised of a gravel driveway located along the northern half of the right-of-way, which provides access only to the applicant's properties, as well as the paved path located on the southern portion, which is not subject to the petition. So these are two distinct pieces of right-of-way in this situation. Now, the homeowner has been maintaining the public right-of-way at their own expense. This includes snow removal, maintaining the gravel, weeding, and landscaping. And um, another kind of point here is that the owner actually owns the underlying fee of the land. The uh, right-of-way kind of functions as an easement over top. Okay. So in this situation, what we have here is that this, what looks and feels like a driveway, is actually technically public right-of-way, but it doesn't lead to anything. There's no reason for the public to ever use this unless you're visiting them. Um, and so from there, uh, the, I want to make, again, very clear. I probably said it a couple of times, but I think it's important to mention that the subject right-of-way is 50 feet wide. What they're petitioning for is 25 feet. It's the northern half. And then the remaining 25 feet where the public park access is, is to remain. And we've been working with parks, and we've also been working with MCDOT. And we all agree that that's sufficient, both for the existing plans for the park and then if any um, – widening plans were to be made to make that trail better, wider, more comfortable. 25 feet is plenty of space. Um, another thing I also want to touch on, too, is should this be approved by council in the future, that piece of right-of-way is not vulnerable because I'm going to get to the next part, which is the findings. So in order for council to make a recommendation, they would need to make certain findings, which is whether or not um, it's either needed for current or future use. And we determine current use based on either evidence that pedestrians are using it. So like even a goat path would be a reason to say this is not a good idea. Um, or if it's an actual road that leads to something, that would be a reason. Um, the second finding is whether or not closing it is necessary for health and safety. I bring that up because again, if there was ever a petition for the park side, we wouldn't be able to make that finding because it's clearly needed for both present and future use. Looking at the master plans, as I mentioned before, this piece, we don't have any future use for it. It's not part of a paper street. We don't have any recommendations to put a road through the park. We've confirmed that with park staff. That's not anything on the plans at all. No, thank you. Um, and so for those reasons, like we weren't finding a lot of reasons to say that it's needed. Um, so we believe that those findings can be made. Um, and therefore, that's why we are recommending um, approval with conditions. Uh, furthermore, uh, the petitioner has complied with all sub submittal and noticing requirements, and we've received no correspondence on this petition. 
Um, so that's what brings us to the conclusion. Uh, but I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have, or if you want to turn it over to the applicant, that's okay too. However, I can be helpful. Just one quick question. What conditions are Sure. You Great question. Okay. So let me pull that up. So the conditions of approval. First, we want to make sure that the remaining piece on the south is untouched by this. And that's, that's sort of a redundant condition because that will happen anyways, but we just wanted to make that like substantially clear. So if any time in the future someone were to ask for this, it's on the record that we said that's an important piece to remain. The second condition states that the applicant must coordinate with the adjacent property owner at 8213 Moreland Lane. WSSC, MCDPS, and Washington Gas to provide utility easements for the existing sewer and gas line as necessary to prior to record plat. So yeah, we got to make sure that's covered. Now, the next part is kind of a tricky thing. I kind of alluded to it. So before consolidating lots two and three, they must demolish at least one of the primary residences because their plans are they want to demolish the smaller house behind. I'll, I'll bring it up again to make it clear and combine the two lots. And the whole, this will only work if they demolish the house, combine the two lots so we don't have a landlocked lot. But due to like the way that you record plats, you can't have two primary structures on a lot, so they have to demolish it first, then they can plat it, then we have it solid, and then we don't have a landlocked situation. And then the fourth um, condition says before issuance of any building permit other than a demolition permit, the applicant must record the plat to combine the two lots. So we're all tied up in a bow, hopefully. Any further questions? No, thank you for that. Uh, I'll let the applicant say if you have anything to say just thank you to the staff for once again a very <laughs> thorough staff report <laughs> and we're happy to answer any questions thank you uh commissioner yeah uh, i have a few questions um so the land underneath is is not public the public just have an easement over this correct so the right-of-way functions as an access easement, that's correct. Okay, and that can be used in any way. It doesn't have to be a road. It could be an access. It could be anything. My only concern about this is that we have a park there, Greenwich Neighborhood Park, mm -hmm. that it looks like that is an active park, mm -hmm. and it, it has access the only access I can see to that park, it looks like it's from Old Georgetown Road. And this back from here, from um, the Northfield Road, is just a trail. My question is that why can't we just keep the right away and create like a signage for the uh, secondary park entrance? It doesn't have to be by uh, by car, it could be by foot, that shows that this is another park. Um, I, I just don't see why we are just giving up a right away that, or a, a right that public has that they can use it for some kind of future park. What is the benefit to the property owner uh, or ha hazard, the, any kind of hazard that this creates for the property owner, we keep it. Uh, if we keep it, if it stays as a right of way, I'm not sure that what is the benefit to public of losing this, uh, uh, giving up this right of way. Mm -hmm. So I'll touch on one bit of it, but then I'm also going to pitch it over to the applicant, if that's okay? Okay. Sure. So certainly one of the things that this does, so when we have right-of-way, that establishes a property line. So this does mean that if they're going to improve 
their property, like they're going to demolish that and put in accessory structures, things of that nature, it's closer into the property than if it was abandoned. Um, I wouldn't say that there's a hazard per se in keeping it, but I would argue that we have explored what the needs are for the access of the park and we think the remaining 25 feet is sufficient. And then with that, I'm going to turn it over to the applicant. Thank you. Um, yes, I would say a couple things. First of all, since this right-of-way has been established, it has never been used as a right-of-way, the northern portion that we're proposing to abandon. Um, as staff indicated, Parks has no intent to ever promote vehicular access from this end. And if you think about everything that the county's trying to promote, pedestrian and bicycle movements, it doesn't include vehicular access. And as you noted, vehicular access is available from old Georgetown Road. I would also note that the, the applicant's predecessor dedicated the property without ever getting compensated. And the applicant currently has been maintaining that section of the right-of-way. So not only are they not getting the benefit of a public right-of-way, they're also getting the burden in that they've been maintaining it in terms of providing gravel, um, in terms of snow plowing, and it has never functioned as a public right-of-way. So I, I see that Parks is here, and they can probably chime in on the need, but from the, from a, um, the applicant's standpoint, um, it they've been burdened with this piece and have assumed it, um, and it would help promote um, ultimately just use of the, the overall property. Good morning, Henry Coppola, uh, Parks Development Review Coordinator, Park Planning and Stewardship Division, just to uh, confirm what um, planning staff and the applicant mentioned that park staff has has reviewed this and been working with everyone throughout the process and the the need here is for the current um, public park access neighborhood connector path trail and we're confident that the remaining 25 feet of the right-of-way here uh, provides enough space for that entrance to to stay usable for the public and to provide enough space, as Katie mentioned, for potential upgrades to this trail. Uh, I'm not sure when exactly it came in or if it's all the way up to our current standards, but that's also something that we'd have to coordinate with DOT uh, as the stewards of the, the right-of-way section, but we think that there's enough room yeah, to, to be I able to keep that. it. The, the only hard time I have is that as a custodian of public land, um, what is the benefit of losing the land, the right for public? This is the, the question that I have in, in, in here in front of my judgment. And is it creating a hardship? And I understand that we don't create hardship for uh, you know, adjacent property owners also. And what is the hardship that this piece of land, as it is, is creating. Is it any kind of hazard or anything else that we could take care of? Uh, that's the question that I have in here. The other thing that I would, two other things to note. Um, one is if you just, the picture tells a thousand words, if you look at the maintenance of the existing park access, no offense to parks, but obviously that could use some tender loving care. Um, and so the question is, does Parks have the, the finances to maintain the entire thing? But second of all, as I noted, the property owner has been maintaining it. If, in fact, it's abandoned, the benefit is that the county now gets a tax revenue generated from right. that piece, which for all intents and purposes has been acting as private property since, since its creation anyway. 
So I think that's, that's clearly a benefit to the county. And also your ability to, uh, to do what you want with a single lot and a, a single house. Correct. Uh, do you think that will uh, add improved value to the county's tax rolls or uh, diminish it? I don't want the assessor to, to listen, but unfortunately, <laughs> I think it, it, it may I'm, benefit the county's tax I'm rolls. I'm trying to help you here. <laughs> I think it's going to decrease it because right now it's two properties that they pay taxes. If you remove it, one, yeah, I don't know, but... Uh, uh, just and I, I, I again, I'm just look at the criteria for right of way, and and, uh, and the relief of a hardship I didn't see is one of those criteria that that we examine in the statute. Um, any other questions? Yeah, let me ask a quick question. Uh, I understand the issue of the disposition of abandonment. Um, and the tax issue too that the county may benefit. But after we, what I don't understand is, okay, we dispose of this right of way, does the owner has to buy this no. right of way? They or? already own it. They, they own oh, it. they, they already so, own so, it. So the, the county department of transportation has an easement on their property. And that's so that, part of their property. That's a public easement. Okay. And the applicant is saying that there's no public need for that. I see. Okay. And we've done the research. There's no public need for that. Okay. So we can abandon these. Okay. You've answered my question. I was just wondering who, whether the applicant already owns that right of way. Okay. They, they do, and they'll confirm that with a new record plot. Yeah. Ultimately, okay. to change so the shape of the lot. Correct. Uh, whatever we so even though that if we don't own the land, we just have an easement, still we have to go through this disposition? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. That makes a difference. Commissioner? Just wanted to, he, he brought it, I wanted to confirm the easement access and things like that, that we have the, the public need for electric and sewer. Yeah, like right. It's so all maintained and, and yeah. will not be unduly affected even if we do end up, because I mean, I think the expansion of that access point to the park would probably be useful at some point in the future, but like that will all be maintained. Yes. Yeah, I thought the Don't conditions were great. Oh, thank I, you. I mean, just, well, and you can yeah. you can thank Miss Bias over there as well. <laughs> she, she had a hand in it. <laughs> Lots of supervision, sir. <laughs> All right, I'll entertain a motion. So move that we approve the, uh, uh, the uh, what is it, the Northfield AB seventy five Northfield Road right of way abandonment with with conditions. I'll second that. Okay, seeing no further discussion. You okay, me too? Yes, yeah. okay. Uh, all those in favor say aye. 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 All those opposed? I abstain. Abstain, okay. Yeah. All right, uh, we have uh, uh, 301. Uh, thank you to staff, thank you for the applicant. And sorry for the smoke.
Good morning. Welcome to the planning board in downtown Wheaton. We are on item eight, uh, Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment presentation of a working draft. If, if the planning board uh, accepts this, we'll set a public hearing date at the end of this meeting that might be as early as July 13th. Oh. oh, okay. Well, sure. Staff will help us with that as we go along. And uh, please, I'll turn it over to staff. Thank you, and good afternoon. My name is Melissa Williams. More. My, good afternoon. My name is Melissa Williams for the record, and I am the project lead for the Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment. Um, and as stated, this is a presentation of the working draft. This slide provides the regional context for the plan and shows its relationship to the city of Tacoma Park, downtown Silver Spring, um, the District of Columbia, and the proximity to existing and proposed transit facilities. This plan is a minor amendment to the approved and adopted 2000 Tacoma Park Master Plan and is a joint effort with the city of Tacoma Park. Although it is a minor amendment, it has its own vision, a defined boundary, and provides the recommendations typically found in a master plan. These recommendations include land use and zoning, historic resources, environment, transportation, parks, and community and public facilities. So this, was, this is our current plan timeline. Um, we've made considerable progress since fall of 2021 when the scope of work was approved by the planning board. We are now transitioning um, from the visioning, um, we're now transitioning from the visioning and working draft phase, and we anticipate having an early summer, I'm sorry, not an early summer, we anticipate having a summer public hearing. Um, the stars indicate where resolutions of support from the city of Tacoma Park will be needed. These are for the working draft plan um, used for the public hearing and the planning board draft plan that goes to the county council. There is also um, an additional resolution that would be applied at the end of the process. The county council has final approval authority for the plan and we anticipate an approved and adopted plan um, towards the end of the year. The Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment is a joint planning effort between the city of Tacoma Park and Montgomery County Planning. Um, there was an MOU for this process. We held regular meetings and presentations were given to both the city council and the planning board as a part of this plan process. Other partners and stakeholders included residents, business owners, and other governments, I'm sorry, other organizations or entities with a vested interest in the future of the plan area. This section will speak to the work that the team has completed to date. The plan provides a minor update to the 2000 Tacoma Park plan. You can see the defined boundary is shown in the hashed, uh, the, the bold hash line. Um, it's roughly 132 acres in size. This, was this boundary was approved by the planning board in 2021, and it includes the following, the Washington Adventist um, University, the former Washington Adventist Hospital, the Erie Center at Flower and Erie Avenue, a multifamily residential along Maple and Lee Avenue, the Tacoma Park Community Center and Library on Maple Avenue, and the Tacoma Park Public Works buildings on Ritchie Avenue. There are also several park properties that are included within this boundary. Um, it is important to note that plan recommendations for zoning are limited to the area inside the plan boundary. The plan process involved gathering information on existing conditions within the plan area. 
This included looking at demographics and the current physical development and conditions of the plan area. This provided staff with insight on the community and helped prepare for the community engagement process. And so what you see here are the high-level things that we learned during the existing conditions work. During our outreach and engagement, we discovered that not all stakeholders understood the planning process and many expressed concerns that their voices um, didn't or wouldn't matter. Um, it's important to note that equity and planning is a core tenet of our master plan process and the team made sure that participants were given a variety of engagement opportunities, um, educated on the planning process and how to best advocate for themselves and their communities, and also to see that their respective goals and desires were carried forward in the working draft. The diversity of the community and the impact of the pandemic require creativity and a multi-pronged approach towards engagement. We used a translation service to make sure that documents and other materials were available in French, Spanish, and Amharic. We also combined um, very traditional outreach and engagement techniques, um, as well as using social media and other online strategies. Um, we ended up meeting with more than 550 diverse stakeholders. Our most significant effort involved um, meeting traditionally hard-to-reach communities uh, located in the multifamilies along Maple and Lee Avenue through a door-knocking and canvassing effort. Um, we also organized events um, utilizing a consultant for the students at Washington Adventist um, University. These were student-led activities, and they provided us with takeaways and insight into how people use the community today and what they would like to see happen in the future. So let's talk about those takeaways. Um, residents, by and large, enjoy living in Tacoma Park, but they were concerned about um, the retention of affordability. Um, they were also very concerned about the loss of the hospital and other assets, such as the swimming pool, which is located inside the Piney Branch Elementary School. And so that's one of our, our rec facilities. Um, there was also excitement about the potential for development on the Washington Adventist campus and the ability for it to provide public amenities like walkable retail and community gathering spaces. They also wanted to make sure that the plan recognized the importance of protecting Sligo Creek. So now let's talk about the future of the plan area. The vision for this plan reflects the common themes that we heard throughout the engagement process. The stakeholders love their community and want to see it protected, and they share concerns regarding resiliency, the need for new uses for old spaces, and the desire for improved connections. Current land uses in the plan area are primarily institutional uses, which are found in the municipal area and on the Washington Adventist campus, and then we have the multifamily, which is located along Maple and Lee Avenues. There is also a sizable amount of parkland. Um, there is very little mixed-use development within the plan boundary. The plan proposes a more flexible land use pattern for the area, and you can see that we have um, a more substantial amount of mixed-use, um, a more, su more substantial amount of mixed-use land shown in our proposal. It is important to note that a few properties within the plan area have more density than what is allowed per their current zoning. So that's shown in that salmon color. These non-conforming properties are highlighted as a part of our existing conditions analysis. The current zoning patterns typically reflect the existing uses with the exception of the R60 zoning. In the plan area, the institutional uses in parkland account for the majority of R60 zone properties. 
However, there is a significant amount of multifamily zoning primarily along May, Lepel, and Maple, Lee, and Greenwood Avenues. There are also two existing overlay zones which predate our current mixed-use zoning tools. And so if you're looking for the overlay zones, those are located primarily along Maple um, and Lee. And then there's also a smaller amount that is located here if you look at the arrow where the, at the Erie Center. The, um, hold on. Um, the plan proposes to apply the mixed-use commercial CR family of zones to fulfill the plan's vision for a reimagined, resilient, and reconnected plan area. And once again, you can see that we're proposing um, mixed-use zoning along pretty much most of, the, of most of the available properties within the plan area. That's along Maple and Lee. We also have a larger block of CR zoning located here at the Washington Adventist campus. And then we're looking at CRN here at the Erie Center and then some additional CRT zone properties along Greenwood Avenue. This section will focus on the new and improved uses for existing places and spaces. The goal for the land use and zoning recommendations in the plan is to create pedestrian-friendly areas containing a variety of amenities and neighborhood-serving uses. The plan recommends flexible, compatible zoning that can be more adaptive to market conditions while retaining community character. This is also an opportunity to remove the obsolete zoning and address any zoning inconsistencies, and that includes those non-conforming properties. The plan also sees an opportunity for new public amenities, including a grain promenade, connecting the plan area with safer sidewalks, new and enhanced parks and open spaces, and new bike lanes. And so you can see the image of the grain promenade connecting from Philadelphia all the way through the property, um, <clears throat> all the way to Greenwood Avenue, and potentially continuing on to the Sligo, sorry, is that Long Ridge? Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park. Um, and to the right, we also show images of the potential amenities and uses that could be found within the Green Promenade. This plan will make recommendations about new and improved public facilities as well, including co-location opportunities for recreation, school, and safety and security offices. The plan area has lots of access to transit, but hilly topography and aging sidewalks can make Maple Avenue and Flower Avenue feel disconnected. The plan makes reconnecting the community a priority. The previously mentioned Green Promenade will build upon the city's Maple Avenue connectivity project with improvements to sidewalks, bike, and pedestrian connections, and some new private streets on the Washington Adventist campus. All private streets should be designed to meet the standards established by the Complete Streets Design Guide. The plan reconfirms the bikeway recommendations of the 2018 Bicycle Master Plan and offers updated recommendations for bikeways along roadways where necessary to align with the 2021 Complete Streets Design Guide. While there are continuous sidewalks through most of the planned area, there are some streets where there are sidewalks on only one side, or existing sidewalks are narrow and or obstructed. The plan proposes improved lighting, contiguous unobstructed ADA accessible sidewalks on both sides of all streets and upgrading all crosswalks, um, upgrading crosswalks at all intersections. This includes the Carroll Avenue SHA alignment project, which proposes pedestrian improvements along Carroll Avenue. And so we're talking about this area here. 
um, near the Washington Adventist campus and provides for new ADA accessible sidewalks and other pedestrian infrastructure. The plan also focuses on ensuring safe use of roadways for all users, including pedestrians, bicyclists, transit users, and motorists, and does not recommend any new public roads. There is an opportunity for private streets to improve connectivity on the Washington Adventist campus, and as previously stated, the design of any new private street must be consistent with the Complete Streets Design Guide and open to the public. Reimagining a community also provides opportunities for preservation. On May 10th, the Historic Preservation Commission held a work session and public hearing on these three sites and found that each met the, the county's historic designation criteria. The Historic Preservation Commission recommended that the planning board list these sites in the locational atlas and index of historic sites and recommended their designation in the master plan for historic preservation. Additionally, the plan recommends studying Tacoma Park's historic African-American neighborhoods, promoting the area's cultural heritage, and seeking opportunities to retain and reuse historic design elements and resources. Additionally, the plan recommends the study of the Washington Adventist University for a historic district. Climate resiliency is the capacity to anticipate, cope, and manage the impacts from climate change. Staff identified the most egregious climate threats, such as stormwater management, extreme heat and storms, and developed recommendations to adapt and mitigate its unpredictability. Extreme heat is Montgomery County's number one climate threat. Temperatures are escalating and, and are exacerbated by a combination of radiating heat and the absence of sufficient tree canopy cover. The plan proposes a variety of methods to address these concerns, including increasing tree canopy and integrating sustainable design development and engineering practices. Carbon sequestration is the process of capturing and storing atmospheric carbon dioxide. It reduces the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and its associated climate impacts and vulnerabilities. Increasing forest trees and other planted areas and reducing impervious cover are some of the best forms of carbon sequestration. Impervious surfaces pre prevent stormwater from infiltrating into the ground, causing runoff that transports debris, oils, and other pollutants into Sligo Creek. The plan seeks to reduce the impervious surface cover within the plan area, which is roughly 47%, with minimal associated stormwater treatments. The plan also recommends supporting the city's stormwater management efforts and recommends a variety of methods to reduce untreated stormwater runoff and pot potential flood rates and imperv impervious surface cover on existing and new development and to improve water quality to Sligo Creek. Improving energy efficiency, reducing energy demand, increasing on-site energy production, and decreasing embodied carbon emissions are essential to meeting the city and county's net zero carbon emissions goals by 2035. Urban agriculture is another important tool in ensuring that all people have access to safe, sufficient, and nutritious food. The plan supports opportunities that increase the capacity to produce and access sustainable, healthy foods. As a part of the engagement process, a canvassing effort was... Hold on. Just go. Okay. Sorry. Um, as a part of the engagement process, a canvassing effort was made in the multifamily residential units along Maple and Lee Avenue. 
These recommendations reflect the comments that we heard from those residents. They love living in the planned area and were afraid of being priced out in the future. There was also a desire to see varied housing types and the need for more code enforcement. The plan also encourages the introductions of MPDUs into new development as another tool to retain affordability. You can ignore the highlight. I think we were trying to remind ourselves that this was there. So we are recommending that 12.5% of new development be set aside as MPDUs. But isn't that the regular? Yes. Yes. Okay, good, thank you. And, and that's why we highlighted it. I think we were trying to remind ourselves that it's the, it's the norm. Um, so the plan area is also home to numerous parks and open space, including Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park, which is the largest park within the plan area. The plan makes recommendations to improve its ecological health and performance, including the Brashears Runs outfall. There are also opportunities for placemaking and natural and cultural resource interpretation. Additional parks recommendations will be found in the district section of this presentation. To better organize the plan, it was divided into three districts. Each has focused recommendations that relate to its unique conditions. These districts include the Municipal District, the Maple Avenue District, and the Flower Avenue District. The Municipal District is the civic heart of the city of Tacoma Park. It includes numerous municipal functions, many of which are located within the Sam Abbott Citizen Center and is also home to the Piney Branch Elementary School and the Tacoma Park Maryland Library. The plan will make recommendations to change the zoning for specific parcels within the municipal district. These changes will impact the floor area ratio of these properties. Floor area ratio or FAR is how density is measured. Higher FARs mean that more density is allowed. Additionally, additionally, there will be recommendations to remove existing overlay zones where applicable. The plan recommends that the zoning in this area be consistent with that proposed for the other properties along Maple Avenue. City and school properties now zoned only for single family homes will be rezoned to a mixed use zone with a maximum FAR of 2.5 and a height of 150 feet. Properties located on Oswego, and that would be these properties here, um, will be rezoned to R40, which is a single family zone that allows for duplexes. Additionally, the following improvements should be made to the Tacoma Piney Branch Local Park. This includes providing additional lighting to improve safety and allow for extended usage of the park, along with opportunities for additional trail connections. There is also an opportunity for a unique gateway and improved connectivity as a part of the Green Promenade. The Maple Avenue District is the planned area's established residential center. It acts as the spine of the planned area and culminates at the Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park. Additionally, the bulk of the residents within the planned area live here and are served by a small node of neighborhood serving retail. This, dis this district is characterized by an attractive tree canopy sidewalks and white sidewalks and steep topography. The plan sees the opportunity for a reimagined Maple Avenue and provides flexibility in zoning. This is also an opportunity to address obsolete and inconsistent zoning. Efforts to retain affordability, sufficient parking, and to minimize environmental impact should be taken. The plan proposes that the existing multifamily zone properties be rezoned to a mixed-use zone with a maximum FAR of 2.5 and a maximum height of 150 feet. And that is specifically for those properties that front along Maple Avenue. 
it is um, all other properties, and that would be those properties that are fronting along Lee, um, should have a maximum 1.5 FAR and a maximum height of 65 feet. It is important to note that the current maximum building height in this district is 140 feet. So we, all have, we already have very tall buildings in this area. The plan sees an opportunity. Um, I'm sorry, this is just showing you the additional zoning along Maple Avenue. So once again, we're looking at these properties along Maple, which would have a maximum, C, uh, a maximum CR zone of 2.5 and a maximum building height of 150 feet, and the district does end at the Sligo Creek Park. In addition to implementing the Green Promenade mentioned earlier, the plan incorporates and expands upon the goal of the city's Maple Avenue connectivity project to make it safer and easier to get around the community. It also looks for opportunities to improve upon and enhance existing infrastructure. One such improvement could be the use of existing parkland at the intersection of Maple Avenue and Sligo Creek Parkway, and that is illustrated here by this red symbol. The plan proposes the that the location be studied for um, an additional use, which could be either an orchard or a food forest. Additionally, the park, the plan recommends studying the potential of a community garden at Opal A. Daniels Park. And that is illustrated here with this red circle. Other park improvements include improvements to the ecological health and function of Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park. These include collaborating with the City of Tacoma Park on improved stormwater management and the restoration of Brashear's Run. Similar efforts are supported for Sligo Waterworks to re slimmer, I can't say the word. Similar efforts are supported for Sligo Waterworks to restore the dam and to incorporate a fish passage project. We've got a lot of tongue twisters in this, so bear with me. <laughs> um, the Flower Avenue District represents the past and the potential of the plan area. The owners of the, the district is home to the Washington Adventist University and the former Washington Adventist Hospital, as well as the community hub of the Erie Center and a variety of housing types. The owners of the Washington Adventist properties have met with planned stakeholders, including residents, regarding their goals for the campus. The plan recognizes their desire for flexible redevelopment tools and recommends that the current single-family zoning be replaced with a mixed-use zone that provides options and allows for the creation of some public amenities and facilities desired by residents and other stakeholders. So it's important to note this area is the only area where we have a CR recommendation. We also have um, some CRT, which is located along the Greenwood Avenue properties and along Flower. A maximum FAR of one point of CR 1.25 with heights ranging from 70 to 120 feet is proposed for the campus, including the hospital. A less intensive CRT mixed-use zone is recommended for those properties located along Greenwood Avenue, which is closest to the existing single-family homes. The development, um, as stated earlier, should also take care to minimize impacts to Sligo Creek. The plan also supports the continuation of the Erie Center, um, I'm going to show you here with the little arrow, which acts as a retail node and we seek to ensure its compatibility with adjacent residential uses. The current mix of residential and mixed-use zones should be rezoned to a mixed-use CRN zone. The majority will have a maximum FAR of CRN1, 
with a maximum 45 foot height. Inconsistent and obsolete zoning should also be corrected as a part of the plan and may require a maximum height of 50 feet for those properties. The need for improved connections to and across the Washington Adventist campus was heard loud and clear during the community engagement process. This plan supports a variety of methods to improve access, including new pedestrian infra infrastructure, such as the plan um, State Highway, SHA, Carroll Avenue Realignment Project, and also the implementation of a micro-mobility hub. It's this highlight again. Ah. Um, the Green Promenade would culminate, uh, would culminate on the Washington Adventist property and would include improved connections to the Sligo Creek Stream Valley Park, attractive gateways, and a connection to a recommended one-half-acre green space on the campus. There is also a recommendation um, from the Parks Department that the dedication of the Sligo Creek, Sligo Creek Slope easement to the Parks Department. The plan supports the design principles that seek to retain, renew, and reimagine the physical character of the Washington Adventist campus and other significant areas within the Flower Avenue District. This presentation represents the working draft, and we ask that the working draft be accepted as a public hearing draft and that a public hearing date be set for September 14, 2023. And so that is the date, <laughs> the new date that we promised you at the beginning. And that request for the new date is a result of the conversations that were had with the city of Tacoma Park um, last evening, last night, um, regarding the need for additional time, which was set forth in their resolution. And uh, substantially takes it out of a summer public hearing, which is always an interesting routine. Uh, commissioners, any questions? Because I got a lot if you guys don't. Go ahead. I have one question that probably you can answer, but uh, the question is just for my education. I'm not questioning what you have done. Um, and correct me if I'm not uh, right. I saw that, because one of the issues in um, uh, Tacoma Park uh, is affordability. It's a place that a lot of people want to go, and um, uh, the houses, even though they're smaller houses and older houses, they're getting more and more expensive. And even just recently, after the pandemic, the prices has risen a lot. And I saw that um, many of your recommendations through this area, and you know, I wasn't involved to see that why we just did this area, maybe mm -hmm. that's the area that you thought it needs most, is by creating flexible zoning. That totally makes sense. You allow more flexible zoning that based on the market that they come, they can do what, uh, what it is there. The question is that, is there anything else we could do in addition, uh, that is great. I understand mm -hmm. that's number one and the basic things that we have to do. Uh, but I think this area may even need more than that. Is there anything else that intentionally we could do that to increase that affordable housing? Maybe uh, you can provide some input mm -hmm. or whatever. So I, I just put it down there. Increasing affordability of affordable housing is different than maintaining sort of rent control. And, no, and there I'm are, not talking about that. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Do you want to answer increasing affordable housing? Yeah, I'm not talking about rent control, just affordable sure. housing. So Lisa Cavoni, for the record, Tenderwine Planning and Policy. So the plan does include other recommendations beyond zoning to help increase affordable, affordable housing. Um, unfortunately, the planning department doesn't have a lot of control over those. You know, for example, we recommend the city and the county work together on things like a tax abatement, like a pilot. Um, other financial tools that the city also has, that the county has, is the right of first refusal that lets them um, have first dibs on a property that comes up for sale for an affordable housing, and they can make it affordable housing if it's not. Um, the plan also does have a significant amount of subsidized housing already, and one of the recommendations we have in the plan is that it's a no-net loss of affordable housing. So should a property redevelop, they would have to equal the number of affordable units being lost in the new building. That's something that's being, that's a recommendation that's being carried over from plans like the Veers Mill Plan, the Silver Spring Plan. So it's something that has been consistent housing policy, but there are a lot of tools uh, recommended in the plan to increase affordable housing beyond just zoning and MPD use. Okay, yeah, um, I, I had a few questions too, shockingly, about zoning and housing. Um, I know everybody is really surprised by that. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the working draft, specifically I'm looking at map six and, and five. Um, a really small note, I don't know if it's just my copy, but the key on map five is cut off. Um, it's page seven, it's page 17 on the PDF, just FYI. It's the existing zoning map, map five. Um, so, uh, yeah, on, on the working draft, I have the key is cut off on that one, so it's, it's hard to register. Uh, but with the proposed zoning on, on map number six, uh, the purple sections kind of on the north, the one and two that are the CRN zones, is, is there any reason we've gone, it's a five-foot height difference. It's a 50-45 between one and two on this map for that CRN zoning. Is there any particular reason we just didn't make that the same zone for the whole piece of it? Is there a, geogra is there a geographical issue or a topographical issue that's that's there? Otherwise, I other, otherwise is there just could we simplify that to to make it all the same height as fifty? So so I can tell you that we were um, that area is actually surrounded by single family homes mm -hmm. on three sides, and so we were trying to be sensitive to the fact that there is an existing single family neighborhood there. Mm -hmm. um, in in this particular area, we actually have homes that are multifamily homes that have um, become kind of de facto conversion. So we yeah. actually have businesses operating out of some of those homes. And what we were really trying to do um, in most cases, because that area actually had some CR already in it when mm -hmm. we opened the plan, is we were trying to clean up some of the inconsistencies. So when mm -hmm. I made the comment that we had properties that had more density than they were actually mapped for. Yeah. That was one of the things that we were trying to clean up. And in order to keep the um, the kind of CRN, the, the number, not the height, yeah. the same, we felt that the easiest way to clean that up would be to give those people that were non-conforming at this point the additional height to bring them into conformance. Mm -hmm. If you believe that it makes more sense to just give everyone that additional five feet. I don't know that it changes it too dramatically because they would still have to abide by the requirements of the of the CR zone mm -hmm. in terms of the setback. So mm -hmm. Elsa, that's how do you feel about that? 
Uh, if the board thinks it's a good idea, I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> How reassuring. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, the, the, my concern is primarily on simplification and anybody's ability, uh, anybody's ability in the future to consolidate properties for, for, an, okay. for redevelopment. It, it's, I mean, there's both the arguments of it's only five feet or it's at least, you know, there's you, very easy to make that argument one way or the other. I just think to, to simplify and give the maximum allowable flexibility within those zones that are so close together. I mean, if there's, a top, like I said, if there's a geographic or topographical reason that there's a height, should be a height restriction there, that's understandable. Otherwise, I would, I would support sort of simplifying those um, just to make it as easy as possible for any future development or consolidation within that particular set of the property. I just want to confirm, too, on the R40 that, that light, orange zone right there most of that is utility if i'm not mistaken right is that correct that it's Those, water i think if it's I the public works department. The public, public works, works department right. so honestly at that point we're not really there's not all that much that's being changed to allow for duplexes within the exactly. within the zoning most of it's handled by utility um and the rest i think is parkland on the r60 almost all of that except for that right. feature it's, sort of on the south of, of hancock there are yes. two single family properties mm -hmm. Now that would go from R60 to R40. But to R40, R60. the actual properties yeah. that would go okay, R60 yeah. to R40, yeah. okay. In that, in that case, I think that's, that's, a, I think that's a fine change, although it's you know, relatively minor for actual sort of development for, for housing there. Um, otherwise, I like the, otherwise I think this is a good, I think this is a good map, you know, for, for proposing existing, existing zoning with a stair step. I like the, you know, the, the CR on the, the Adventist campus locations. Is there anything proposed or planned or anything like that that we've heard on that particular property, particularly the the or the hospital side? Um, I may have missed it. Oh, um, so we, we have regular meetings with the Washington Adventist Group, and they've actually presented um, two concepts publicly. And so they're looking at uh, a mixed-use development that incorporates the existing um, Washington Adventist University and housing. And so there are some other uses that could potentially be there. But it, there is a, a publicly they've shown um, two concepts. Okay. Let's stick with zoning. Num number one, uh, I saw nods to your, your five feet addition mm -hmm. around. Are you okay with that? Okay. Yes. All right. So we got a nod for that. Um, my main concern on, on the... Uh, uh, the Washington Adventist property is is the fact that uh, a lot of places were recommending 2.5 FAR and and 150 foot height, and in fact we just recommended that in Fairland, mm -hmm. uh, which is much further out than this is, uh, and it's a a point. It, it's a large enough site that you can do all th sorts of things on the edges to make it compatible if it's an edge compatibility question. Of course, you, you're not, it's hard not to be compatible with a stream, uh, but, but you see, why aren't we giving them more uh, FAR flexibility? So the, the site is 40, over 40 acres and so 1.25 FAR gives them over 2 million square feet uh, available density, uh, which I think is you know, perfectly compatible with the plans that they're proposing. Doubling that would allow 4 million square feet. Um, I'm not sure that you'd be able 
to, to fit it. So I think based on our discussions with the Adventist uh, folks, I think we're in agreement that the amount of height and density is appropriate for the site and sort of consistent with their with their plans. And the plan, the plan does have language that says that the maximum height should be along the stream and then scale down to 70 feet at flower. And, and we think it's okay to zone this area only to 1.5 FER, yet, yet further out on Fairland, we should go to 2.5 FER on the, uh, um, uh, CMP telephone site. Uh, the uh, Verizon. Verizon. Thank you. So I think from the from the staff perspective, I think you know each uh, you know all these communities are different, and so what makes sense in Fairland and Silver Spring and Tacoma Park and Bethesda is not going to be the same. I think this is more of I guess a context sensitive approach. Um, so I think it it's. It, and I'm not familiar with the site in Fairland, so 2.5 may have been the exact right number. I think we have higher densities, um, slightly higher densities along uh, Maple, but you have much smaller sites, so that in order to get you know, a little bit beyond what's existing, you need a higher FAR, but because this site is so big and that it's surrounded by single-family communities um, and smaller-scale institutional uses, um, the staff recommendation of the 1.25 FAR and 120 feet, we we thought was appropriate. And and do you think uh, that most of that FAR would go toward housing? So I think one of the you know we've we started talking about this plan with the Adventist folks three years ago, and you know a lot's happened in the last three years. Uh, and so I know that they are looking at a variety of uses. Certainly the hospital will be coming down. Uh, there's a medical office building on site. Uh, and so I think they are definitely looking at housing, but I think they're also, you know, and looking at different types of housing, different types of markets. But just sort of given the timeline of the plan, uh, you know, we were shooting for maximum flexibility. But I think housing is definitely in that mix. Okay, and the other, one, the third question I have on this site is, is you're not you're not requiring a public street, even though the, I, I don't know the street names. The connector between uh, lots two and <coughs> well two and two, uh, I don't know what that public street is. But you wouldn't think of connecting Maple Avenue to that street in a way that's compatible with development as a public street? So you wouldn't, so at the at the western, we're gonna call it western edge of the uh, of the campus site is, you know, a good 40 feet above the stream. And so I, I don't know that you'd be able to get a direct connection um, to Maple anyway. And I think, you know, again, with the idea of providing maximum flexibility. If there's a public street, we have to identify the right-of-way. We have to draw lines that may make sense now, but may not make sense a year from now. So uh, we decided to have any streets. And I, I should also mention that pretty much every street in the plan area is a city of Tacoma Park Street. There's a small right. section um, that is county right-of-way, but the rest is in the city. Um, and you know, I think the the city was fine with any new streets on the campus being privately maintained. Of course, there would be public access to all of those 
uh, all of the streets. And as Melissa mentioned, there's a general recommendation that you know any sort of street and pedestrian network on the campus really needs to connect to the surrounding communities right. and to the other districts. Agreed. Uh, I don't. Um, uh, is the uh, board satisfied with uh, the 1.5 re recommendation? 1.25. 1. 1. 1.25. 1. 1. 1. Oh, 1.25. Oh, I got my five <laughs> in the wrong place. <laughs> uh, the question I have is that if we want to increase it from 1.25 to 1.5, is it going to be a lot of, have you checked with the public or other, uh, you know, communities, is it going to be a lot of opposition to that to increase the density? I, I would recommend that that discussion, because it's increasing density, be done as part of the work sessions. Uh, mm -hmm. A five-foot height adjustment uh, is, is probably not that earth-shaking, but not. adding additional density there, I think, would probably uh, draw comments from the community and would be able to be addressed at work sessions. And yep. of course, that's the the, the uh, purpose of, of putting this out to public hearing. Absolutely is to correct. get the comments. Uh, you know, I, I just want the board to recognize that mm -hmm. if we wanted to recommend a higher density, mm -hmm. there will be no density higher than what, what we're what putting we're out to, here. <laughs> to the public now. Yeah. Right. It, I mean, certainly the board mm -hmm. would be able to change the density as they saw, as, you, as, as, as you it go. sees fit during right. the work sessions. But yeah. I, I don't see great interest. Yeah. So. Oh, I, w I was going to jump in. I mean, my preference would be to to simplify and raise the FAR at these and, and all these locations. But given that we're in consultation with Tacoma Park, the city, and that this is a considerable increase and in change from the current situation, I think that this is a good. I mean, I, this is I think beneficial overall for the housing and the housing consideration. I would, on my personal preference, you know, increase those as necessary on all on on the properties. But right now, I think. Given where we are in consultation, I think they're I think they're okay. fine. I, I like the five. I, mine is preference. Like I don't with with something like the the purple section on what I'm going to say is north ish up there. With that sort of five foot height, simplification is good. I think in a general sense, five foot. You know there is all there is the argument that it's not that big a deal, but there's also the argument that there's no real reason not to have those be the same across the board on all on all the measurements that we have. Given its improvement from its current location, the amount of consultation we have, I'm fine with it. What now? Okay. If we do have a board sense of raising it, I'm also perfectly up to support that. Okay, I, you know the um, the old the you guys will have to deal with this later on. I will not. So I'm just offering it up. Yeah. And, and let me offer a couple of other things. One of this is, although I think it's a, a terrific plan and uh, very fine to read and, and holds together, um, I don't think it sells the area uh, enough in terms of saying, of having the context of this place. You know, this is an area that's, uh, I don't know, within X miles of, of, the, of the capital. This is, uh, this is, there are X number of jobs within 15 uh, driving minutes, or there are a thousand more jobs within uh, Transit Act, whatever. Uh, you guys are free to have those determinants to say, this is a real place. Uh, and, and I think that will just help further down the line and add to the significance of the, the zoning that you're applying. Yeah. 
okay? Uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to point out, I mean, the, the zoning with the, the CRT zone of what's numbered four on the map zoning two is really where there's there's put considerable potential for increased residential oh, yeah. as well. That That's also where the main... I think even as much as that prop, as much as the the Adventist property is is appealing, and the other ones, it's that it's that corridor along Maple that's the real that's the real key for increasing housing. And I think that there's a point there to be made that there's the opportunity to increase considerable amount of residential area that is close to both. I think it's it is a Tacoma Park Metro that's southwestish from there, not terribly far. <laughs> so now I'm looking at this map, and I'm trying to remember the rest of the yeah, map. Right. South, can, and then the purple line is, comes around the north side. Hold the, on. The, the, the Chicago Park Metro is probably a 10 to 15-minute walk. Yeah, give or take from that way. Yeah. Is staff okay with, with, the, with the direction to put in something that gives this context and, uh, within, and comparisons with other places around? Yes, we will do our best to yes. fill that brief. Okay. Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. Uh, we can certainly do that. The only comment I was going to make was just pointing out that this is a minor master plan amendment as opposed to a full-fledged master plan where we typically get much more into that, that type of detail in terms of providing the context of, of the community, but we can certainly include that yeah, I, for this I, I one. Think, I, I just don't think it would hurt and would help. Certainly. So that, uh, those two directions. Uh, you keep on... Um, mentioning Maple Avenue and the Greenway, and to do that, are you satisfied with the right-of-ways you have for Maple Avenue? I've got, yes, this is a Tacoma Park Street, and, um, but is your recommendation consistent with the right-of-way? So I think it's important to note that when we talk about the Green Promenade, we're really talking about reusing um, in existing stormwater easement and other utility infrastructures that are along Maple. So we wouldn't, um, we're, we're not looking to use any of the existing right-of-way. We're looking to make use of these um, easements that are adjacent to the right-of-way that typically are not buildable. And so the idea is that we can provide um, kind of a multi-purpose function for those easements as they currently exist. So just a, a bit of context for that. So Brashear's run um, is, uh, is, uh, is buried under Maple Avenue. And so in addition to that and the storm sewers along Maple Avenue, there's a series of sewer easements uh, that, as Melissa pointed out, cannot be built upon. So the idea was not to move the curbs but to be able to, where we have opportunities as properties come in and redevelop, to sort of take advantage of those spaces that can't be built upon to have a measure of public amenity. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's great and all of that. I didn't pick that up in just my read of it. Is it somewhere in the plan that says it's? It is. That's a, okay, thank you for that. Um, I'll read better in the future. Um, and I would add that we're working on getting a map that actually shows where those easements are located. So that's something that we could have available for you at work sessions. That would, that would be a good thing too. Um, and uh, again, with the, with the right-of-way issue, it would mean that you're not, of course, expanding the right-of-way through the park, right? You're consistent no. with the right-of-way as We're, it exists. Correct. Okay. Um, I, I did not check this against the pedestrian master plan that we just sent up to council with its, uh, now I gotta remember the word BIPA areas uh, and those places for, 
for uh, bike friendly areas. Have you checked that to make sure there aren't recommendations there that I, apply I, to this? So I think we will we'll double check that and at the work sessions if we need to make modifications we can do that. We've been coordinating with with countywide planning but I the and I I'd have to, to look back for the for the bike pedestrian priority areas though I understand we're moving to a slightly different model but we'll double check that. You should double check it before we print it. <laughs> you know, let's let's at least in the plans we put up there, make make sure we're consistent. Um, I'm very aware of uh, the our uh, park policies and guidelines. One of them is that our parks close at night, and yet we're proposing lighting a local park. Have, is anyone here from parks to? Say I yes. Think we, this I is think a we good have Chuck. Idea. We have Chuck Kynes from the Parks Department on the, on the virtual. If you yeah. Can you, John? Can you hear me? Yes, Chuck. Thank you. Hi, Chuck. Nice to see you. Yeah. Thank you. I am uh, remotely uh, remote connected to the meeting today because I am uh, recovering from COVID and quarantining. So that's why oh. I'm not there today. <clears throat> Hopefully, but yes, we are aware of the, of the parks policy, uh, which says that. Um, Lighted uh, park, except for facilities that are lighted, our parks closed at at dusk. That is correct. What we're proposing here is to uh, light the the basketball court and the and the uh, skate park here um, to offer additional level of service for the residents in this area, because um, you know because these parks close at dusk. They are not available after five o'clock uh, half of the year. So, uh, what we're doing is, you know, what we want to do here is uh, light uh, these two facilities in an area that, that wouldn't have any impacts to nearby residents, uh, but provide an additional level of service to the residents. That's that's the thinking here. Mm -hmm. It's okay with me. I just <laughs> I'm just checking in. You know, it's a. Uh, uh, I have this stuff in my head, and I got to make sure they're consistent. It's, it's a good point. I think Ho Jung is here because urban parks right now that they're doing that, they're changing some of the policies within the mm -hmm. urban parks and allow people to use it during. I know that Tacoma Piney is not urban, but I guess that they could provide those designations, yeah. Right, so for the record, I am Ho-Jung Garland, uh, Park Planning Supervisor, so thanks for uh, pointing that out. Um, so, you know, first of all, just to providing a couple of the background, um, while we were doing um, uh, um, the CIP forum several years ago, uh, several high school students actually showed up to ask us to, you know, lead the skate park. So they were really, um, you know, going home about it. So it was really nice to see the student participation at the time. So we wanted to actually explore the possibility of that. And at the time, when we also uh, followed up with the city, they were saying that, okay, if you're going to, you know, light the skate park and how about parking lot, how about the uh, court and things like that. So we, we heard them, um, but obviously we still need to assess the feasibility about, you know, potential impact for the, um, the native species or, and ecology and then all that. So we'll be still exploring it, but we just wanted to make that recommendation as a consideration um, so that way uh, we, we have a way to uh, respond it. And, and Parks is also content with the, the study areas for 
providing the food, the garden places or what, community gardens? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we were actually, we've been communicating with our, um, the uh, community garden manager uh, to about uh, the, the possibility of that. Um, so we, we are assessing about the uh, possibilities and see how we can make that work. So. Okay, and, uh, and how's the tree cover in the area that you are looking at maybe putting in gardens? Um. So this was more about the community garden purposes per se, you know, rather than like forest conservation type of thing. Um, so it's more to provide like community gathering, you know, per se. So um, hopefully that answers your question. So it's not like you're looking at taking out a lot of trees to put in growing. Oh, out. correct. It's more opposite. Yeah. More the opposite. I mean, no. It means like we're trying to provide more trees. You know, when we're talking about the uh, the, uh, the food uh, forest and yeah. Um, I can jump in really quickly. Um, the the area where we're talking about the potential change in use. Um, so we have where the red circle is located. That's essentially a a piece of flat land. It's a triangular piece between Maple Avenue and Sligo Creek Parkway. And so um, there are a small number of trees there, but by and large, it's a green flat area that right now the community kind of uses as un, kind of unprogrammed park space. Mm -hmm. That's good. And nobody's taken up bocce to preempt <coughs> your use, I guess. Bocce will come back, I'll, I'm telling you. It never left. It ne <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me it never came. <laughs> Bocce will be a future issue, I think. Um, uh, the, the other thing that, that um, struck me in your presentation was that you said it's a priority to have more planting when the impervious surface is 25% or greater. And it seems to me like you have less area to plant when you have 25% or greater impervious surface so those two so i think that there are a couple things with the impervious surface we have a, a green cover requirement similar to that what we have in uh downtown bethesda and downtown silver spring which is intended to minimize impervious cover but then i think there's also in terms of planting it's sort of more of the active planting passive planting so on it is Rather than just having grass, there may be, through the development review process, a more active planting requirement. So I think in terms of you know, properties that come in that have the high impervious area, I think we would be looking for something a little bit more active in terms of their landscape plan. Got it. Thank you for that. It just struck me as <laughs> going in opposite directions a little bit, but but I, I understand it. Um, anybody else, please? Oh, I just had one more thing to mention. I wanted to say uh, I appreciate the inclusion of the streets renaming section that was in there on the Lee Avenue. It was there. <laughs> I had not really ever thought about that, but right between Sherman, Lincoln, Sheridan, and Lee, that makes a ton of sense. So I, I, I thank you for that inclusion. I know it, it seems like it's a city street of Tacoma I, uh, Park. I appreciate it. Remember that Bethesda was founded by Colonel E. Brook Lee? Uh, that's a different that's Lee. Different Lee. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have too many Lees. Please. 
Sure, I was going to make a suggestion, um, Tanya Stern, again, uh, for the, the newer board members, uh, perhaps when our remaining two board members um, are added, it may be informative uh, for us to give you a presentation on our street renaming project that we did a couple of years ago. Um, so that recommendation sort of helps to support that effort. Um, but there's a sort of a larger research project and some initial street renamings that we've already completed. Um, so whenever we have these opportunities uh, to pursue potential renamings of streets that were named after Confederate right. soldiers, you know, we want to try to take advantage of that. Do we know this was named after the soldier and not the local Lee? Well, that's one of the interesting findings from that uh, earlier research that we did, which our historic preservation um, staff in our department and the parks department collaborated on, is that um, the streets that we did rename at that time, they were full name matches, so we knew the streets were named after specific Confederate soldiers, but there are quite a number of other streets that have uh, last name matches to Confederate soldiers, but is not clear that it was actually named, those streets were named after those specific individuals. They could have been named after other individuals who shared a same last name. So that was, that's sort of additional work that we would have to look into because it's not entirely clear if you look just at the last name. Uh, or if the, if the street name only has a last name, it is not always entirely clear who that individual actually is. Yeah. I thought it was interesting on this one in particular, though it is surrounded by names that are very obviously Union generals from the time, Sherman, right. Sheridan, right. Lincoln. It's a march up, I guess, east, west to east at that point. I get the sneaking suspicion that, you know, that that, we pretty much know. That it was the other week. That it was, there was, there was the one we're talking about. All right. Let me review the bidding. Um, uh, the staff will put in a little bit of context at, at their discretion. Uh, check with the pedestrian master plan to see that there it's consistent. Um, change the zoning recommendation uh, to the 50 feet on those other areas we cited before. Does anybody, ha and other than that, we just had general discussion that will not change the plan. Does anybody have any other thing they would want to change? No. No. The only thing I meant that was... That is a terrific uh, plan I got. <laughs> no, it was good. <laughs> Map 5, the key for my version is I overlay. I just want to make sure that... I don't know if that's mine or if that's an no, issue. No, I, I agree that on on your your map on uh, Map 5 Page uh, was cut off by the map itself. The key was cut off. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure staff will take care of the yeah, editorial items with that. Do you? Uh, so you would like us to approve the... Well, you'll publish this out again, right? You, you certainly won't, uh, you'll have plenty of notice if we go with September 14th, for sure, for whenever you get this out. So I think our, our intent is to, so we'll make these changes. So if the board approves designating the working draft with the changes you just described as the public hearing draft, we will make the changes and then we will publish the public hearing draft and we will put the notice in the paper and that will formally open the public record and then uh, the public record would remain open uh, sort of through the September 14th hearing if the board approves that date um, and then uh, typically another two weeks longer to sort of the end of September and then we would look forward to work sessions in October. Great. There was one other thing I wanted to bring up, and that is uh, for the single-family areas immediately outside of this. 
And that is, I think you have a statement in that uh, that you think uh, it, they're compatible. Your recommendations are compatible with that area. Uh, I, I'm concerned in my former life for for uh, local map amendments brought on by change mistake because we did a master plan on one side and didn't consider the single family on the other. So the single family comes in for increased zoning that you didn't expect. Uh, are you satisfied with your comments on the area outside of the plan? Yeah, I mean, the area outside the plan is covered by the 2000 Tacoma Park master plan. I think, yeah, but this changes from that plan. This is a change. Well, it's only within the plan area, and so we, right. we kept the, the plan area to the multifamily areas along uh, Maple and to the areas around the campus. And so more, f I think, from a development review standpoint, uh, we're concerned about compatibility, and there's language in the plan, certainly, certainly language in the code. Uh, but I, I think there was a deliberate decision, uh, so I, I don't, I think we're comfortable I think we're comfortable with, I mean, the, with the plan boundary as approved by the board. Right. I'm not suggesting changing the plan boundary. I'm suggesting some descript some comment on the area immediately outside. If you're content with getting local map amendments, that's fine too. But just know that that's a possibility, given the jagged nature of of that line, at least on the southern side of the plan area. I mean, I think we can, you know, I think this is, so I think this is a discussion that's probably good to have at the work sessions. I think we're comfortable with where we are now. There's a break between the multifamily and the single family, um, and, you know, the single family homes are, you know, they're, they're well kept there, you know, they're rising in, 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 in value. So I wouldn't expect too many. But I, I think we're comfortable as is. Okay, I, I, just giving you that opportunity. I, the zoning lawyer in me went immediately to, okay, I can I can do something with this plan outside of the plan. Uh, anybody else? I'm sorry to monopolize this much. Okay, I, I'll accept a motion to approve the draft with the amendments and setting a public hearing date for September 14th, 2023 with our thanks and congratulations to staff. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely, so move to approve the uh, Tacoma Park Minor Master Plan Amendment with the uh, changes we discussed in the, uh, this session and then the present, and then uh, sending a public hearing date for September 14th, 2023. Do we know the time? Do we know the time? Do we know the time for the public hearing? Do we have a time? There. 6 p.m. 6 p.m.? I'll say at 6 p.m. <laughs> Subject to future. <laughs> adjustments as necessary. And I second that. Okay. <laughs> All those in what? Do you want to talk about the satellite? It, we, we have a feature. We okay. have a special feature. <laughs> sorry. Uh, that, that, Mr. Chair, you're going to be sorry to meet, but you'll, you'll be able to come in person. Melissa, please. <laughs> um, so we did have a request from the City of Tacoma Park to ensure um, that their residents would continue to be engaged in the plan, they would like to have a satellite location um, for the public hearing at their auditorium. It would happen same day, same time um, with staff, um, some staff present as needed, and it would be managed by our counterparts with the City of Tacoma Park. So their planning staff would manage that 
simulcast of the public hearing. Oh, so it'll be an IT event satellite that they could communicate mm -hmm. with the board yes. that day? So we're oh, anticipating that That's kind of neat. Yeah. Cool. Oh, great. Are, are, are our like IT people okay with it? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, yes. and, and, and we'll give a shout out to, to Roz Grigsby, uh, yeah. the city planning manager with the city of Toronto Park, whose brainchild that was. But our staff and their staff have talked about it, and now they've got an extra couple of months to make sure the technology <laughs> works. But no, we're excited about it. That is a very neat idea. I'll enthusiastically add that to the resolution. <laughs> we need to add that to the motion. Yes, let's do it. Absolutely. Okay, we have a motion and a second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero zero. Thank, Thank you so you much. Very much. Thank you.
Okay, it's June 8th, 2023. I'm sure it's sunny above the smoke, uh, but we still have some smoke. It's a little bit better. On, but we are on item nine, rules of procedure. Uh, this is a public hearing. There are no speakers. I'll turn it over to Ms. Vias. Good afternoon, for the record, Emily Vias, uh, legal counsel. And um, before I start, I was going to give um, Acting Director Tanya Stern um, a moment of time. Tanya Stern, Acting Planning Director. I just wanted to take this moment very briefly, since I did not have a director's report today, uh, to share um, an additional uh, strong note of appreciation uh, for our outgoing planning board chair. Jeff Science, as well as our outgoing vice chair, Roberto Pinheiro. And we just wanted to say on behalf of our department, uh, just very briefly, because I, I will be making some further remarks at our the celebration this afternoon, um, just how much we really appreciate, particularly your leadership, Chair Zions, uh, serving in this role during this very critical time for the commission on Montgomery County side, and stepping in and taking on the leadership of a brand new board, and also, uh, leading the uh, the uh, more incoming uh, permanent board as well. Uh, you've been a very steady hand and a very um, welcome and trusted advisor uh, for me, particularly in this role for myself, um, but also for the planning department. We definitely appreciate all of your knowledge and background having worked here uh, previously, but also at the council in helping us uh, work with the council, particularly given that there's so many new members of the council as well. And uh, just for myself, just wanted to say I just really appreciate um, my collaboration and partnership with you and feeling that I can definitely, you know, discuss a lot of different matters with you and really just always appreciate it, your counsel. So just wanted to say on the record that uh, we very much appreciate you at the planning department and we wish both of you um, very enjoyable second retirements. A third, thank you. Uh, but uh, 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 as long as we're doing this, I, I appreciate the acting uh, uh, director's job as director uh, because you really there was nothing acting about it, <laughs> uh, and and just as uh, as I rejected that subtext as for as long as you're in the position, you're in the position. Uh, and I've appreciated your taking that on that way <clears throat> and uh, all of our interactions. But I, I, I credit everybody's kind words to my hairstyle. <laughs> <laughs> if I hadn't copied uh, uh, Mike Riley's style, it would have been all gone. But other than that, let's get on with uh, <laughs> the uh, rules of procedure. Okay, well, I will just add one thing more from the legal department, and you didn't copy my hair, so I'm not sure where to go with that, but um, I'll try not to be offended. Um, but I also wanted to um, thank Commissioner Panero, um, because you stepped in numerous times when we needed you to take over the meetings. You did so remotely. You did so with an arm in a sling um, uh, from abroad, and we really do appreciate that. It was critical that we were able to continue to run these meetings and you did it without missing a beat, and we very much appreciate um, that. And of course, um, you know, Jeff, uh, keeping us prepared for, for meetings, um, and from the legal department, as I say, you've both been a pleasure to work with, and um, we do appreciate uh, your leadership. And um, as a former first-class Girl Scout, I would have to say 
um, that you left this place better than when you got here. And so um, that's, uh, that's what we credit you with. So thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now more exciting things like rules of procedure. So when we adopted the new rule, rules of procedure last year, um, we threw in a comment that we would review them annually just to um, keep them up to date. And so here we are um, reviewing them. And we just came up with a couple of changes we'd like to propose <coughs> just to clarify things. It really doesn't change a whole lot substantively. Um, and I'll just go through them fairly quickly. Um, so we wanted to, again, be clear that a quorum can be in person or virtually, um, because again, as we see um, through Commissioner Panera's ability to run a meeting remotely, um, it, it's possible these days, and it kept things moving. Um, in addition, uh, the General Assembly did include some additional training requirements um, last year. And so again, with as part of the ethics portion of the policy, we wanted to include a reference to that um, any training requirements, and of course, if there's overlap, you must do what is most restrictive um, to be sure we've got ethics covered. Um, with regard to uh, ex parte communications, as you all know, you're not allowed to talk with outside folks when it's a regulatory matter, um, and the rule, of course, says that you can't communicate with people other than um, staff, legal counsel, or other board members. We just added subject to open meetings act, as you all are well aware. If more than two of you um, are discussing business, it creates a quorum, um, and we don't want to do that. So we, again, wanted to be clear. Um, the presiding officer. Um, again, we generally follow Robert's rules and have appointed vice chairs in the past, um, and we just wanted to, again, include it clearly in the rules. Um, that if the chair is absent, the vice chair um, can take over. If the vice chair is not there, then another board member can be designated. Um, because again, we've had some things happen that we never would have thought would have happened. And uh, we didn't really plan for it. So now we're trying to be a little proactive and make sure we got it covered. Um, this was um, just clarification as to where to look um, for and where to sign up on the planning board's website because we do have a planning board website, a planning department website, a parks department website. So it is the planning board website where you sign up to participate um, in public hearings. Um, again, with regards to public hearings, um, we can designate the time for individuals or group representatives because we have um, that distinction, generally, we give a group representative a couple more minutes, so we wanted to include that. Um, this may be the one substantive change, actually, for um, petitions to reconsider, which by law, an, a board does not have to allow petitions to reconsider. Um, the planning board has allowed it in the past, um, and it does sometimes allow for a correction if an error has been made or something <clears throat> truly needs to be corrected. Um, but what we wanted to be clear on is that the filing of the petition for reconsideration does not toll the running of the 30 days to appeal. And so when we looked at that, we also wanted to shorten the time because if we have 10 days to file the appeal, which is what it is now, and then if you allow any other parties to file something, you're already up to 20 days if you allow 10 for each, and then we've got to get it on the agenda, which is another 10 days. So you've sort of run your 30 days before the board even gets to consider it. So um, we thought it, actually seven days is probably enough if somebody wants to ask for reconsideration. 
Um, and we also made clear that somebody can respond. So the parties get notice when a reconsideration is filed. They're required to file notice to all the parties. So in addition, we just expressly said that you can, um, any party can file a response to the reconsideration. Um, it's still not a public process in that there's not a public hearing or anything else, um, and the board still considers it as a preliminary matter. Uh, but we've just shortened it so at least within 14 days you've got all the pieces of paper that you need um, to decide if you're going to reconsider or not. Um, and we expressly said it doesn't extend the time for um, filing an appeal. Um, in preliminary matters, um, there was a typo, um, and then uh, we included, again, corrected resolutions. Again, you've seen several of those. That is how we handle them, but we wanted to expressly say that. With regard to abstentions, um, there was a phrase that said, if you abstain, it reduces the quorum. Um, I, that's not correct, so we just took that phrase out. It does not reduce quorum. Um, simply if someone um, yeah, abstains. So the quorum would remain. So we took that out. Um, previously, we had a statement that the rules were, if something's not here, we look to Robert's Rules of Order. Um, I think that may have accidentally been removed, so we put that back. Um, so that when you do um, have a question and it's not covered here, we can rely on Robert's Rules. Um, and then the election of the vice chair Again, we are expressly saying what the board has been doing, which is doing that in a public meeting. Um, anybody can nominate a candidate for the vice chair position. And that would be it. Any questions? Go ahead. I do have a question, not regarding the changes, uh, just a, a question about exclusion. Can I ask here, or does it have? Yeah, because under the scope, uh, and 1.3, uh, we say that these rules apply to the board conduct, and then you have a list of everything else. And then halfway through that, it says that these rules do not apply to the board's consideration of other matters, uh, but not uh, limited to so-and-so. So these rules is it for regulatory matters? Uh, I just want to make sure that I, I have been doing it for everything, but if there are areas that you don't have to have it, it's just good to know, not to worry about. <laughs> right. In general, right. We have to be sure we cover the regulatory matters, which is generally what is in the first part where it says that it does. Yes. And the rules can be used for generally whatever the chair wants to use them for. Um, except for their, the like mandatory referrals, there's uniform standards for mandatory referral, that, so they have a separate process. Um, for violations, there's separate rules for handling violations. Um, and, so, and for as we listed with studies and reports and analyses, right, in terms of some of those things, there's no notice provisions necessarily, and there are things like that that, you know, there's no... Um, set rule for, so that's why we excluded those things expressly um, from um, use of the rules, but it doesn't mean that in any particular case you couldn't um, follow the rules, but um, because they just set a framework for allowing you to bring things, you know, to the public realm, but they're not required. Yeah, for me it was a strange that it included decisions related to the management of Parks Department and its facilities that's not included or 
mandatory referral matters is not included. I thought they were all included, so that was a little bit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, the mandatory referrals. For me. We have a separate set of rules um, that governs mandatory referrals. So maybe we should see those. I do not so, know if sure. something that we have to be concerned about. Sure. Sure. We can. Now. Yes. We can provide those. The in fact, we adopted a new set of uniform standards for mandatory referral. Um, last year as well. I okay. think we got those approved by the full commission because um, they go to the full commission. Oh, okay. So there are separate rules. So yeah, that would be good at one those. point that we know what they are because we're going to sure. face them all the time. So we understand. I didn't mm -hmm. know they were different. <laughs> I know. Thank sure. you. And we're reviewing this because they said we, uh, uh, somewhere, uh, I don't know where it was adopted, that said we would review this every, every year. Uh, is there a similar provision for mandatory referral for review? No, not there's not that similar. And that they are a little more um, complicated only because they are also bound up in, uh, it has to go to the full commission um, based on um, the land use article and right. everything. And so uh, we try, we can if you want, but I mean, in general, the, there's a little bit more involved in reviewing those. And, and to keep that steady, so. The, right, yeah, to not change it frequently, but. Okay, any other questions, Commissioner? No. Okay, I'll, I'll uh, entertain a motion. Okay, I move to, uh, uh, you know, approve the staff recommendation to adopt the proposed changes for the rules of procedure Seconded. Okay, no, seeing no further discussion, all those in favor say aye. 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 Thank you very much. <laughs>
Welcome to the Planning Board meeting on June 8th, uh, 2023. Uh, believe it or not, having done item nine, we are now on item five. Uh, for those of you keeping track, we are on the briefing for Bill uh, 2523 taxation, development impact taxes for transportation and public schools improvements, its uh, amendments and potential ZTA. Uh, Park Improvement Payment and Civic Improvement Fund. And with that, I'll turn it over to staff. Thank you, Chair. Um, for the record, Lisa Gavoni, Housing Planner with Countywide Planning and Policy. I'm joined by my, co uh, my colleague in Countywide Planning and Policy, Ben Berbert, um, to brief the board on expedited bill 2523, uh, taxation development impact taxes for transportation and public school improvements amendments. So to give you um, a little bit of a preview of what we're going to be discussing today, I thought we could start with the recommendations to keep in mind as we go through the presentation. So planning staff will be recommending the following. So planning staff supports the modification to the transportation impact tax adjustments, which include a 20% cap and a carryover system. Staff is also recommending the carryover system use a dollar amount instead of a percentage. And for the school impact tax recalculation, staff supports the 20% cap on increases, but does not support the carryover. Planning staff is also recommending a zoning tax amendment be introduced to update the language for the park impact payment in the Bethesda overlay zone and the civic improvement fund in the downtown Silver Spring overlay zone. So a little bit of background on Bill 2523, expedited. It was introduced of, on May 18th of this year, and it will have its public hearing next week on the 13th. And the first work session is also scheduled for next Thursday, June, um, June 15th. And what this bill does is it modifies the calculation for impact tax rate adjustments for transportation improvements by requiring a cumulative increase or decrease in the construction cost index rather than an annual average every two years. It also establishes a cap on the development impact tax rate for school and transportation improvements, allows certain increases to the biennial tax rate adjustments, and generally amends the law governing transportation and school and development impact taxes. So a little bit of background, and then we'll get into the, the meat of the bill. Um, so on impact taxes, Chapter 52, it requires the Director of Finance to adjust and publish updated development impact taxes for transportation and public schools every two years by May 1st of odd number years. For transportation impact taxes, the current law requires the transportation impact tax rates to be recalculated based on the annual average increase or decrease in a public, published construction cost index over the most recent two calendar years. And you heard a little bit about that this morning when you talked about the PIP. Um, the law has been interpreted as taking the average of the two annual index changes and the increase in the index in 2021 over 2020 was 6.05%. And the increase in the index in 2022 over 2021 was 12.89%. And the average of those two increases was 9.47%. Therefore, the Director of Finance published an updated rates to take effect on July 1st, reflecting that 9.47% increase. So walking through the residential transportation impact tax changes, I know this is a very hard chart to read. Uh, I'll try to walk through it. As you can see, generally the transportation impact taxes are lowest in the red policy areas, and they're highest in the yellow and green policy areas. And on the bottom, you see the updated 
rates uh, from 2023, reflecting that 9.47% increase. And what that change looks like for the transportation impact taxes in 2023, it ranged from as low as 139. Uh, I, I don't think you can see my mouse. So, uh, can you see my mouse when I hover? Okay. Mm. So. It's okay, I can talk through it. Um, so the increases for transportation impact taxes for 2023 range from a low, as low as $139 for senior units in the red policy areas to around $2,400 for detached structures in the yellow and green policy areas. Now let's talk a little bit about the background on school impact taxes. So school impact tax rates are calculated on a biannual basis by the planning department on behalf of the Department of Finance, and it's based on the latest school enrollment data from MCPS, housing inventory data from SDAT, the State Department Assessment and Taxation, and school construction costs that we receive from MCP and MCPS. School generation rates, or SGRs as we call them, they capture the average number of public students living in a particular housing type and geography combination. And Montgomery Planning calculates SGRs for eight combinations of housing types that include single family attached and detached, multifamily low rise and high rise, and that distinction is four stories and below for low rise and five stories and above for high rise, and school impact areas which include turnover and infill. And using the and we use the current school's official and complete enrollment in a corresponding housing database. And so for the school impact taxes, the, the taxes are reset and they're recalculated to their true value every biennial update based on the actual SGRs and actual MCPS construction costs. So I'm just going to give a little bit more background on, on SGRs because it's really important um, to this discussion. So student generation rates, as I said, they capture the average number of public student, school students living in a particular housing type and geography combination. So in order to calculate the student generation rates, MCPS, they provide the planning department with enrollment data that contains every address and grade level of every MCPS student. And these data, they're mapped and they're joined to property data from the State Department of Assessment and Taxation, or SDAT, and they, that the SDAT data identifies the type of housing unit is, whether it's single family detached or multifamily low rise, and that's associated with each student. And then the total number of students counted in a certain geography and dwelling type is then divided by the total number of dwelling units of that type in the geography to derive the average number of students per unit given for the given geography. And if you look at the example at the bottom, you see a, a multifamily low-rise building with 12 dwelling units and two students. So you do that math and you get an SGR of 0 0.167. So let's talk a little bit about the school impact taxes increases because um, they were they're pretty dramatic this year. Um, it's been much higher than previous adjustment updates. Um, and in 2021, you can see at the top that the impact taxes ranges from about $3,000 for a high-rise unit in our, multi, in our infill area but to almost $25,000 in our turnover areas for single-family attached. In the, most in the most recent update for 2023, Impact taxes for schools increased to about $5,000 for a high-rise high unit in infill area to over $35,000 for a single-family attached unit in our turnover area. So what does that look like? Looking at the change, you can see that these are pretty dramatic. The increases range from around $1,800 um, to over $10,000, representing increases ranging from 41% 
to over 129% for high uh, rises in our turnover area. So, so why are we seeing these dramatic changes? And the main uh, driver for these rate increases is the increase in school construction cost data, co construction costs per student. So if we look, compare the, our school construction cost data provided by MCPS two years ago, um, the current cost to construct an elementary school is 34% higher, a middle school is 44% higher, and a high school is 53% higher. And, but that, that's not the only factor that's at play. So while the main driver is the increase in construction costs, there was also an increase in student generation rates, and they played a big role for our multifamily impact taxes. So while current school year enrollments are up from the last time the SGRs were calculating using the pandemic 2020 to 2021 enrollments, the enrollment increases are not uni uniformly distributed across the housing types. So countywide, the SGRs for single-family detached and attached actually fell 1.3% and 0.6% each. Um, meanwhile, the multifamily SGRs increased 19% for our low-rise structures and 14% for our high-rise structures. And as a role, the increase in student generation rates play a larger role in increasing multifamily impact taxes. Um, for example, 47% of the increase in the turnover impact area, multifamily high-rise impact, was due from increased enrollment in those units. Hey, hey, uh, let me stop you a second. I don't know the difference between an infill impact area and a turnover impact area. Sure. So in the last uh, growth and infrastructure policy, which was previously called the subdivision staging policy. Um, Forgive me if I missed it. Oh, you, I, I, don't, I don't think I went over it. So Mr. <laughs> Sarsori, please step in if, uh, if, you, if needed. Um, so we use, we, in, 2026, in 2016, we established transportation policy areas. They're red, green, yellow, and orange, which a lot of people are familiar with. You know, you're red or you're closer to metro where you have that infrastructure. And then yellow and green is your more, you know, more greenfield development where you're putting that infrastructure in. When we went to the 2020 update for the growth and infrastructure policy, we said, wouldn't it be great to have something similar for schools? Because um, we're really seeing different neighborhood contexts for student generation rates. And what we're seeing in our infill areas where we have, which is an infill area, and maybe should I pull up the map? You, you can. If you want to pull up the map, I'll, I'll try to explain sure. it. So for the record, Jason Sartori, Chief of Countywide Planning and Policy. So. Uh, for the board members who will be here uh, after today, you're going to see a lot of this going forward because we're about to embark on the next update to the, the growth and infrastructure part policy. Um, so what we tried to do with the last update was to provide a little bit more of that context in how impact taxes are set and how we evaluate whether or not uh, the, the impact the development will have on school enrollments. And so we ran a model that we created to try to understand the dynamics of different neighborhoods. And what we found was that there were really three different things that were at play here. The first was the amount of new development that an area was seeing. The second was the type of development, whether it was primarily multifamily or single family. And the third was how much school enrollment they were seeing. And so we were able to essentially group the different um, planning areas of the county by those three high-level variables. And uh, we, we, what we found was that there were really three different types. You had what we were referring to as infill. These were areas where you're seeing a lot of new development, but it's mostly multifamily, creating very few students. So those tend to be, those are all the areas you see here on, in blue. And then we had 
turnover impact areas. And those were areas where you might have seen a lot of enrollment growth, but there's very little new development happening. Any enrollment growth that you're seeing is coming from the turnover of the residents of our single family neighborhoods. And then we had a third type. You don't see that on the map. Uh, the third type we called Greenfield. These were areas that were more consistent with the type of development we were seeing when that policy was first created. Areas of the county where you're getting a lot of development, mostly single family generating a lot of students. We had one area that, that when we went through the board that we had identified as having that, and that was the Clarksburg area. When we went through the uh, council work sessions, the council said, we'd like to place a little bit more emphasis in your model on future potential as opposed to what you've seen in the past. And when we adjusted that to incorporate more future uh, potential for development, that Clarksburg area fell out of the Greenfield area and into our turnover area. So as a, as a result, we only have the two, green, uh, uh, in, uh, turnover impact areas and infill impact areas. And so when we calculate our impact taxes or our student generation rates, we do it for those two different areas so that they're context sensitive. They recognize the different types of development we're seeing and their impacts on school. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I'll say about the drivers of um, these student generation rate increases for multifamily is we think this is pretty indicative of the current housing situation. The last time, since the last time we did student generation rates for the 2022 uh, growth and infrastructure policy update, um, we've seen pretty dramatic increases in our home sale prices, 32% for detached structures and 18% for attached homes. So we think families are being priced out of single family units and are opting instead to live in the less expensive multifamily units or live in them longer. So while multifamily structures still see substantially fewer students on a per unit basis than compared to single family units, compared to two years ago um, when we last did this update, there are currently more students living in multifamily. And that's a trend that you know, we're gonna follow and see what that leads to in the next update. So now let's get into the meat of the bill. Um, so first let's talk about the transportation impact taxes. And what they would do is section 5249 would be amended regarding the calculation of tax rate adjustments for development impact taxes for transportation improvements by using a cumulative approach over the prior two years rather than that annual average that we saw. So the director of finance would have to cap that biannual cumulative rate to not exceed 20%. And if the biannual tax rate adjustment is calculated to exceed 20%, the excess percentage amount must be carried over and added to the next biannual adjustment. And applying the cumulative inflation, inflation factor to the current transportation impact tax rates would increase the rates by approximately 19% of the, instead of the previously published increase of 9.47%, so right under that 20% cap. And for the school impact taxes, um, Section 5255 pertaining to the update of school impact taxes rates would be amended to follow similar procedures as proposed for transportation impact taxes. The director of finance would have to cap the biannual impact tax adjustment to not exceed 20%. And if the biannual tax rate adjustment is calculated to exceed 20%, the percentage amount must be carried over and added to the next biannual adjustment. So on, for recommendations, um, on the transportation side, Planning staff supports the cumulative approach, the 20% cap, and the use of the carryover balance. May I ask a clarifying question sure. really quickly? When it, if there's an exceed, 
uh, if a year exceeds 20, or not year, exceeds 20% and you're carrying it over, is the next, I'm assuming the next two years is still subject to a 20% cap. Is that correct? Right. You, you just right. keep carrying it over. You just keep carrying it over as it rolls along, just making right. sure that there's not a potential for 23 or what have you. Something right. Like that. And just so if you think about the school impact tax rate, is that 142%? Increase, we'd be carrying that over for a very long time. For quite some time. Yes. Um, I just wanted to make sure that that was yes. subject. Does carryover is subject to the cap? Yes. Gotcha. And so while planning staff supports the approach for transportation impact taxes, it would be most accurate uh, to return the rates to their true value by banking a dollar amount instead of a percentage. And I'm going to ask Mr. Sartori to walk through uh, a graph illustrating this. Okay. Uh, thank you. So... Um, before I dive into this, essentially there are three different approaches that we see to, to this. The first is to only apply the cap without doing a turnover, uh, uh, a carryover. The second would be to apply the cap with the percentage carryover that is proposed in the bill. And the third would be to apply the cap with a carryover of the dollar amount. And so I'm going to walk you through what each of these would do. Um, so keep in mind that the, the transportation impact tax updates, when they're done, they are calculated by applying an inflation factor to the existing rate. The carryover essentially helps us get back to the true rate at some point. And we'll walk through how this works graphically. Uh, with This is a completely hypothetical example, but with an accurate application of the different approaches. Uh, this is going to be like a, the Goldilocks story, I think, uh, except with a lot of math, so bear with me here. All right, first, go ahead. Okay, so what you see here, the gray line, this represents what we call the true impact tax rate. So in this hypothetical, we're assuming a 65% true rate increase in 2023 from a, a, a tax that started off at $5,000. So follow that, and then we follow that up with much lower inflation of about 5% increase every subsequent update, so every two years. So that's why you see the line change. So now here with the yellow, uh, this is what happens if we simply apply a 20% cap. Without any carryover, you get this dotted yellow line. You can see that the initial jump during the period of high inflation is muted by the cap. However, because you never recoup the capped inflation, the tax rate will never get back to its actual true rate unless we decide to break the cycle at some point and do a, a true reset and recalculate the transportation costs and, and, and do a, a complete reset. All right, next. The, this dashed red line shows you what happens when you apply the cap and an application of a percentage carryover as is proposed in the bill. So for a while, the banked carryover continues to get capped as you just asked, right? Um, it continues to get capped at 20%, but at a certain point, the banked amount will cause the tax rate, rate to exceed its true rate, and that's because we're banking a percentage that was intended to be applied to the initial $5,000 from 2021. But because we defer the application of that inflation, it's being applied later to much higher base rates. And so it's kind of like the concept of uh, like compounded interest. And so that's why it ends up being above the, the actual true rate. So what we're proposing is we like the idea of the, the cap so that you can mute the effects of, of high inflation, um, but that we would carry over a dollar amount that gets added to the existing rate prior to applying the inflation factor. So then you get this dashed blue line 
that essentially gets us to our true rate and it stops there. Uh, and it, it prevents us from saying, you know, future development applications will pay extra or above their impact to compensate for the, the folks who early on got the discount. Um, so essentially that's why we are recommending what you see in the blue line here, the, the, the cap of 20% plus the dollar amount carryover. I think helpful. this is so smart. You guys figured that out. <laughs> Seriously, because um, at first it was hard, but then I read it and I said, my God, these people are so smart, they figured that out. Because it has to be, well, all of you, it, it has to be fair and uh, well done. Thank you. So we have some recommended adjustments to the language in the, the bill. Um, it, and it reads, if the biannual tax rate adjustment exceeds 20%, the excess dollar amount must be carried over and added to the tax rate before calculating the next biannual adjustment. Does, does that language make sense to to because you're carrying a dollar amount to a tax rate. How do you carry a dollar amount to a tax rate? Well, the, the tax rates are per dollar. There, so the tax rate for um, if you could go back to the the transportation impact tax okay. slide that you had. No, the uh, the slide with all of the rates. Sorry, uh, one more. There, okay. See, these are the tax rates. They're all dollar amounts. And so um, you see in a red policy area for oh, single, oh, okay. right, uh, so uh, we're uh, applying a dollar amount on top of this before we apply the inflation factor. I'm fine. Okay. Thank you. I'm gonna click through the uh, animations. <laughs> so I, I, uh, you can, I don't think I need to read it again, but. Uh, uh, we'll go through the recommendations at the end, but this is the proposed language that we are suggesting to bank, uh, to carry over that dollar amount. And one of the other things we try to do is we try to make it really clear so that if anyone picks it up in like, you know, 10 years, if we're not here, that they would understand the intent, hopefully. So um, our, our other intent was to clarify the language, to make that clear. This would work with footnotes. <laughs> it's very true. Um, so on the school side, our recommendations are a little bit different. We support the 20% cap, and given the large increases that we, that we illustrated in the impact tax rates in the most recent update, a cap will lessen the impact and ensure that impact on uh, impact taxes are not increasing at a rate that makes development in, in the county harder. Um, but we do not support the carryover on the school side, so I'm gonna talk through that. On the school side, the true value is achieved automatically every time the rates are updated. So the point of the carryover should be to bring the tax rate to the true value over time after it has been artificially reduced by the cap. The carryover makes sense on the transportation side because the biannual update does not involve a full reset of the transportation infrastructure costs. The updates to the transportation rates, they're based on percentages being applied to the current rates. Applying the carryover after the biannual recalculation for schools would cause the impact tax rate to overcharge developers for their impact on enrollment. Essentially, future projects would be overpaying for the discounts that offered to earlier projects. 
And you know, again, on the transportation side, applying the carryover is just telling future projects that they'll be paying the appropriate share because we're applying previous inflation that was never factored into the tax rate because of the cap. On the school side, the current tax rates are not a factor at all, at all in determining the new tax rates. We always calculate at the true value and we always reset. Um, However, if the council keeps the school impact tax carryover provision, the carryover should be banked as a dollar amount, not a percentage. We're going to walk through another example. <laughs> we have more animations. All right, we're going to pass it back to me. So, okay, this is for schools. It's another Goldilocks type of story, although it's a slightly different story this time. Uh, remember, as Ms. Gavoni just said, that the true impact tax rate is calculated every update with actual housing cost, uh, housing data, actual enrollment data, and actual school construction cost data. Uh, we're not applying an, an inflation factor to the previous tax rate. So because of this, all three approaches will actually get you to the true rate eventually. Uh, it's just a question of what path each approach takes. So go ahead. So here again, the gray represents the, um, the true rate. Now, in this case, we're using a, a real example, at least initially. So. These are the turnover impact area, multifamily high-rise impact rates for 2021. They were $5,061 per unit. The calculated new rate is that increase of 129.2%. That's $11,601. So that's real. Uh, afterwards, I've made some assumption, again, of just doing a 5% increase over every two years. So this shows, again, that true rate. Now. What you see here in the red dash line is this demonstrates what is proposed in Bill 2523. It's a 20% cap with a percentage carryover. The increase is constrained in the early years by the 20% cap, but at a certain point, the set rate in the red line catches up to the true rate, but because there was so much carryover built up from the previous updates, we continue to apply the carryover for years to come and we're adding it on top of the true rate. And so this approach ensures that you know, the set rate will be much higher uh, than the actual true rate until we've run out of all the banked carryover, at which point it then precipitously falls and gets back to the true rate. Go ahead and click. So now the blue line, this is what happens under the scenario with a 20% cap again, but with a dollar amount carryover. So it's essentially the same as the percentage carryover approach, but less extreme because the amount we're carrying over doesn't result in the compounding interest effect that you get with the percentage. So um, you know, again, though, it eventually gets back to the true rate, but sooner than the percentage carryover. We don't like this one either, but we, it's preferred over the percentage. I just hope you're dealing with Glenn Krieger up there at the council. Uh, you mean or Glenn Orlin? Oh, Glenn Orland, I'm sorry. Glenn Krieger is also. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, <laughs> I'm too old. Uh, but, you know, you, you need uh, the math experts up there uh, to really go through this. We'll request him. <laughs> if he's um, not retired. Right, not yet, no. Uh, so, okay, so this final one, though, shows you again the yellow dot, uh, dotted yellow line. Uh, this is the approach that we're proposing. So in this case, it's just to apply the cap without any carryover. So it ensures that we constrain the impact tax rate to the 20% increase during periods of high inflation. But once the set rate hits the true rate, it continues on the path of the true rate. Uh, you know, with the carryover approaches, you're essentially saying, as we've said numerous times now, the pro future projects will pay in excess of their impact to offset the lost revenue. And that may be the intention. But it doesn't seem fair from our perspective that future projects should pay for the discount that current projects get. The, the, the really, the, the background thing that sticks in my head 
uh, all the time is you're using average uh, pupil generation rates as opposed to the average rate for new development. A and that's a critical change because you figure, uh, I understand it because you're assuming that, you know, that unit's going to stay there, the kids are going to come over time, uh, it'll get to the average someday uh, as yeah. opposed to the higher rates that you would get by new development. Well, I invite you to come back while we have all of our work <laughs> sessions on the GIP, on the growth and infrastructure policy, because that's something we look at. And one of the things we found last time was that, you know, for single family homes, it's very cyclical. If you look at how long it's been since the home was bought, right. you know, initially it starts off with a decent number of students, it increases pretty rapidly, and then it slowly goes down over time. But, but once you get to like 15 years since the home was sold, it falls and it stays low for a while. And we have a lot of homes in our county that people have owned for longer than 15 years. 75%, I think, of our homes, single-family homes, had zero students in them. When you look at multifamily, uh, it's, you know, uh, on average, it's, it's a pretty balanced. People don't tend to, it's not as cyclical. It's, it's a low more, more student turnover. generation, and it's, it's a lot of turnover. They tend to turn over once every two years as opposed to a much longer period for single-family homes. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that. But mm -hmm. I, yeah. Boy, I hear you now. I did not understand it when I was reading this, but this is enormously helpful. Yeah. It's me, Jeff. I'm the, I'm the problem with the student generation rates. Like, <laughs> I mo we moved into our house and immediately had three kids. Like, that we, we are the problem. And, and that wasn't due to the house itself, was it? No, no. We just, you know. Okay, just making sure. Right? So yeah, right. Okay. Um, Understood on the words. And I want to, I do want to note this is um, a correction from our staff report. We had uh, some language treats since then, but we have since corrected the staff report, and this is the correct language. Um, we also have a minor modification recommendation to section 5255 to help better capture the process of the recalculation of school impact taxes regarding school construction costs. And we just added the words average MCPS, school construction costs. Averaging what? Uh, between years? Uh. So the way we get these data from MCPS, they actually look at what's in their CIP. So currently they have three high school projects in their CIP, one for um, Crown High School, one for, I think, Northwood, and then one for uh, Woodward. And so they take a look at all of those and they essentially average what's the cost of a, middle, uh, a new high school. and what are we typically building them to in terms of enrollment size, 2,400? So, so, yeah, it's all averaging. Just me. Go ahead. It, it, it was really alarming for me when I saw that the construction cost for school has gone up 50% for high schools and then 30 or 20%. This is going to create a big dent in CIP because it's going to make the affordability of construction by half. And uh, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's very alarming. And the kicker there is changing standards on what is a standard high school. What facilities do you put in? How much square footage do you get per student in, in that new space? And whatever they're doing on the base of that due to their program is affecting school construction. It's just like when, when we do parks, 
if you put in a fountain and you put in the bathrooms and you put in 20 other things that used to not be there, that park is much more expensive. So per square foot of parks, our parks costs are going up. And, and the interesting part, exactly for what you said, park changed their policy standards. Rather than building, the, uh, they went to renovation and, you know, re and creating more that they, with the money that they get, they be, they be able to do more parks. And I do not know how school is really doing it because it's going to be some schools, they're going to get like a Taj Mahal, and then you have other schools that uh, there is not enough money. Uh, I, I'm not very familiar with how they do their work, but it is very alarming the way I, I read it. You know, one thing I'll just let you know that uh, typically we try to hold annual uh, meetings between the two boards um, and so we are looking to try to get that scheduled for the fall so it'll be a good opportunity for us to raise some of the the, the kind of the, the see where there are synergies between the work that we do but also where there are you know some areas that we've we, we meet regularly monthly with MCPS staff and uh, but it's a good opportunity for the two boards to get together to be able to talk about some of the issues and concerns that each has with uh, their different realms so yeah this is yeah. A good Thank you, go ahead. Moving on, I'm gonna turn it over to Mr. Berbert to talk about a potential CTA. Thank you, Lisa. And for the record, Ben Berbert with Countywide Planning and Policy. Um, so we're smart. Rather than creating new code every time we come up with <laughs> new funds that need to be adjusted every other year, we like to just copy and paste, except when there's an error in the original <laughs> formula, we have to then correct our errors. Um, and so, as was discussed earlier, both in the Bethesda overlay zone with the PIP and the downtown Silver Spring overlay zone with the SIF, we have every other year a tax rate that goes into these amenity funds that get calculated, and it was based on the same methodology that was being used for the old transportation impact tax increase based on the average. Um, and so it only makes sense to us that these also probably should be calculated on an accumulative average and also using the 20% biannual cap and the dollar amount carryover provisions. Uh, and so in the packet is a ZTA that would adjust both of these overlay zones accordingly. Which would have to be, our recommendation would be for council to introduce that ZTA. Correct, we are, we are requesting the board to request council's introduction right. of that ZTA. It would have to come back to this body for its review at some point. Right. Um, and so again, the language that's shown here, this is for the Bethesda overlay zone. Um, I do note the little B in the title is highlighted in yellow just to point out that I forgot to include that when I initially <laughs> did the section reference because, goodness, we like to bury stuff in the code. Um, and so again, it's basically the exact same provision. The only real difference here is it's all in one paragraph instead of two. So again, Bethesda overlay zones calculated on July 1st of each odd number year. Um, you just did it. Uh, and so again, replacing annual average with cumulative increase, um, looking at the prior two years, and then the planning board must uh, cap this at the 20% any excess. It's, it's exact same language we've discussed earlier. Um, and then again, for the civic improvement fund on the next page, it's an even number year, so that would be recalculated this time next year. Um, so that is, I believe, all we're proposing with the, the ZTA. So in conclusion, planning staff supports modifications to the transportation impact tax recalculations, which includes a 20% cap and a dollar amount carryover system. 
For school impact taxes, staff supports the 20% cap on impact tax increases but does not support the carryover. And planning staff is also recommending a zoning tax amendment be introduced to update the language for the park impact payment in the Bethesda overlay zone and the civic improvement fund in the downtown Silver Spring overlay zone. And then we have some potential uh, board motions because we wrote two different, <laughs> we're going to write, we are going to write two different transmittal letters um, given one goes to the county council and one goes to the district council. So we asked the board if it's to move oh, to trans transmit comments on expedited bill 2523 to the county council supporting the bill with modification as identified by planning staff. And we also asked that the board move to transmit a request to the district council to introduce a zoning tax amendment to clarify the calculation of adjustments to the Bethesda Overlay Zone Park Impact Payment and the Downtown Silver Spring Overlay Zone Civic Improvement Fund. But it's not really to clarify, it's to make it similar to the changes being made for the other transportation. You see what I mean? Yes. You could put whatever verb you want in there. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is, I have to sign it. For right. <laughs> So uh, they have to do what you want. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, it, it's not a clarification. It's it's making them similar, right? I think. It, these are just sample movement uh, oh, okay. motions, so okay. we can. All right. Why don't we use the term modify instead yeah. of clarify? Okay. It is a substitution. Yeah. Tanya Stern, acting planning director. I just have one question um, regarding the transportation impact tax and also the park or civic improvement uh, tax, uh, tax, is there any time or any kind of language that rather than using percentage, maybe after five years or 10 years, they reset and recalculate? Because sometimes it's not just the cost of living. Sometimes it is as what Jeff just talked about, change of standards or other things that could change the value uh, of uh, you know, these percentages that we are talking about, and if we just add inflation, it may get out of whack from what is reality. Sure, so I would say with the impact taxes, we take a look at those with every update to the growth and infrastructure policy, and we question, is it time to do a reset? Um, we did not, last time we did a reset was in 2016 on the transportation impact taxes. And so, you know, maybe we do that again this time. It's a lot of work taking into account what are all of the different types of transportation projects that are in the CIP? How do we like carry, you know, like standardize them? It, there's a lot of work there. But with the PIP and the SIF, it's really at the board's discretion. If at some point you start to think this is, I mean, there's nothing in there that says you need to do a complete reset of these every so many years. But if you at a certain point, the board says, I think it's time to do a reset. You know, staff can go through that pre process and send it, you know, we can send a, a, a it would be a ZTA to the, the council to reset the, the rate. Yeah, I was just thinking, uh, yeah, I totally get it, and thank you for the explanation. Uh, it's just that after a while, mm -hmm. you just want to see if it is still fair or correct. Sure. That's it, and from both sides. Sure. So. I think it does make sense that, and I'm happy you're doing it uh, because probably, you know, we cannot think about it unless someone brings it uh, to us that every five years or whatever, depending on uh, how the market or economy has been going, someone to look at this and say, are we fair? And are we just? And if this is the right number, 
that is very helpful. I'll also say with the PIP and SIF, I think those values were a little less based on a fixed amenity we were trying to get costs from, and it was, it's more just based on sort of paying for excess density into a fund that can be used to make nice things. Um, but I think it's even harder to figure out what the accurate numbers are for that because they both were ultimately arbitrarily set by council sort of based on what they felt was a good market condition at the time. Um, so I, th I think it, 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 for the transportation impact, it, there is actually hard data that can be gathered. It's a little more squishy with the, the PIP and SIF that also yeah. lends question to what we would actually even be reviewing if we were to do that. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Yeah, and... Um I totally get it, but I think that because like Bethesda, or the, the reason that these were created, it was the land values that were so expensive in Bethesda and then also in Silver Spring that would not allow to, uh, you know, acquire any kind of land because we didn't have that kind of uh, capital um, money available. So I think it is important that even for the PIP or SIF, we look into and see that are we getting anything that is just and gives us the affordability to purchase uh, the land. Uh, the main reason that I remember was, you know, land cost was so high. Okay, I'll entertain a motion. Uh, move that we transmit comments on Expedite Bill 2523 to the County Council with modifications as discussed by staff. All right. Is there a second? Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 Four zero zero. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Do I have another motion? Uh, I will move that we transmit a request to the District Council to introduce a zoning tax amendment to modify the calculation of adjustments to the Bethesda Overlay Zone and the Downtown Silver Spring Overlay Zone. And I second that. A second. Uh, uh, Point of privilege for conversation. This will be my last motion, my last action <laughs> on the board. My last vote. I, I appreciate everybody saying thank you. I appreciate all the board members and the time they put. This has been a remarkable experience, and I, I just thank everybody. I don't want comments on this. So, <laughs> so it, we'll, we'll talk we about it. No. I gotta tell you, I'm too emotional these days, but uh, I don't need that on the record either. <laughs> uh, but but uh, I thank everybody and I support the motion that we're about to take here. All those in favor say aye. 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 All right, four zero zero. I, I, this meeting is adjourned.